Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle take turns introducing each other to films, and in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, so it is the month of September, which means it is Masterclass Month. Um, this is the second year anniversary of Catching Up on Cinema, and uh, the very first thing we ever recorded, uh, Kyle and I, uh, was a Masterclass, quote-unquote, of the Predator film franchise. And essentially what we mean by that is uh, this whole month of September, we're going to be taking a deep dive into a long-lived uh, film franchise. And uh, in this case, we're going to be covering the Batman film series. Um, last week, we covered uh, the Tim Burton era of the series, uh, which means this week we're going to be taking a look at the next chapter in the Bat Saga, and that would be the Joel Schumacher era. Uh, Mr. Schumacher is not a stranger to this program, is he now, Kyle? I <laughs> uh, don't think so, no. Have we? Oh, yes, yeah, St. Elmo's Fire. Yes, uh, St. Elmo's Fire being, uh, is that your number one guilty pleasure film, Kyle? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely up there on my list. Um, Kyle and I both share an appreciation for that film, um, warts and all. Yes. Uh, in fact, those warts are probably what make it enjoyable. Otherwise, it would just be boring oh, yeah. and stupid. <laughs> but uh, it's a strange film. Check it out if you haven't seen it already. Yes, do. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, this, this episode, we're going to be covering the Joel Schumacher era of the Bat Saga, which includes uh, Batman Forever. I believe it's from 1995, and uh, Batman and Robin from 1997. So we're going to be covering both films in one go. Um, so to start things off, uh, like we did last week, uh, we should probably just talk about our, our personal history with both of these films, Kyle. Um, you want to start us off? Yeah, so the two Schumacher Batman, uh, I don't know if we I don't know if we own these on uh, VHS. We might have, it's very possible. Um, regardless of whether we owned them or not, these are two movies that I watched the hell out of when I was a kid. Uh, this is a movie that if we were staying, if we were hanging out with uh, our parents' friends or something, and they're like, you guys can watch some movies, if we saw Batman, either one of these Batman, they were in the VHS player. Like, it was it was happening. Um, I think I said last week that probably my favorite, my favorite Batman was, is, as an adult, going back, Batman, Batman Returns is probably my favorite. As a kid... Batman Forever was my favorite, I think. Uh, I don't know. Jim Carrey was a huge part of my life, so the Jim Carrey-ness of the Batman movie was really fun as a kid. As an adult, it's a bit much, because <laughs> he is off the fucking rails in this movie. Like, a, like, like Robin Williams on coke off the rails. Um, <laughs> he, but I think as a kid, you're drawn to his high energy. Like he was just so much fun to watch, and the the boring stuff, like the like the Val Kilmer Batman of this. As a kid, I was just like, yeah, I don't really give a shit about him. As an adult, going back and watching this, the, the subtext of the film or the underlying themes of the film are completely different than what you remember as a kid. Yeah, I would agree with you on that, and we will certainly get into that. Um, Batman Forever in particular, uh, there's a lot more going on there mm -hmm. than I think some people give it credit for. But um, for me, uh, Batman Forever, uh, I I could be wrong, but I seem to recall seeing it in the theater, mm. which would put me at about like eight years old, maybe nine. Um, I could be full of shit. That may not have happened, but I seem to remember seeing it in the theater. And I actually, I've, I've said this before on the show. Um, I was very fortunate to 
to have seen uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm in the theater. Oh, that's cool. Um, historically, that film is known to have been one that not many people went out to see. Um, it did very poorly at the box office. Um, but I seem to recall going to see that with my brother and maybe my cousin. And I, I know for certain I saw that one in the theater uh, because during the cemetery attack scene with the phantasm and a mobster, uh, I put my head in my knees, like <laughs> in my lap, because <laughs> I was a scared little kid. <laughs> but, um, I watched the rest of it, though, because the way they advertised that movie um, featured a scene wherein the Joker and Batman were fighting in a, a miniature city, like a toy city. And I was like, oh, that reminds me of Godzilla. Immediately, I need to see this. <laughs> oh, yeah, and Batman. But um, Batman Forever, I remember being really fucking bored in the theater. Hmm. Because, like you said, as an adult, you view this movie through a different lens. And for me as a kid, Jim Carrey was fun. But I think even as a kid, like I never really went for comedies very much. Hmm. Um, I definitely I definitely like was attracted to them and certainly Jim Carrey's energy and like the mask and stuff like that. I was I was really into that. But I think it was more like the special effects and stuff like that that I was into rather than laughing at the product. Um, So for me, like even him, that wasn't that big of a selling point. I just remember being continually bored by all the scenes with Val Kilmer and, and mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman. I was like, because I was a young enough kid that was like, my my dick doesn't move for any of this. Yeah. I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. <laughs> when why are they not punching people? <laughs> yeah, she's um, aggressively horny in this movie. Uh, and as a kid, from like, from from frame one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. Um, yes. <laughs> Yeah, the I was a very high energy kid and I had a very difficult time focusing. So I think maybe I was more attracted to comedies and especially Jim Carrey because he just was off the walls. I'm like, this guy is this guy's fascinating. Uh, he's really funny. Um, the other thing with like Batman and uh, Batman and Robin, of course, uh, I really liked because I mean I think you and I both are um, Arnold aficionados. Like we very we very much enjoy an, an Arnold movie. And <laughs> Kyle just did a wine, like a little swishing, a brandy swisher. Yes, yeah, he just mm. he just did a pantomime of swishing a this wine. Is, this is an excellent uh, Arnold movie. Um, <laughs> good I, vintage, good vintage. Uh, but the other uh, I was, I was going to mention before I uh, discussed Batman and Robin was Batman Forever was fucking huge. Uh, we probably still, well, not still. Uh, we had the glasses from McDonald's, the Batman and Riddler glasses. Uh, this was like so. McDonald's was where our cult, like kid culture, was at. It's like Michael Jordan, fucking Batman Forever, whatever's happening, it's there. So this was at that time too. It's just like Michael Jordan, Batman Forever. That's all you need to worry about. Yeah, the ha- the Happy Meal was kind of the the tone setter for each like season, I guess. Yeah, uh, and Batman and uh, Batman and Robin, I liked as a kid because I. Th- I think the sets and the costumes and the lighting were just, I was just drawn to it as a kid. It was, this was before we had like iPads with like Angry Birds and uh, Pixar stuff. So having a movie like that where you have all this like neon light, basically, like all these neon colors, it's just as a kid, you really like it. And there's a lot of that in Batman Forever as well. Yeah. No, uh, both films uh, from a production design standpoint. Lighting is certainly radically different from what we experienced before with the Batman franchise, but production design, you can tell that um, it has a it's a, it has a different approach to it, mm-hmm. and there's certainly a lot to say about it. Um, Batman Robin, I think I also saw in the theater. Um, in fact, I know I did. I, I saw it 
several weeks after it came out in theaters. Uh, so all the bad press, I think, was already out. I was still young enough that, I, you know, I didn't care. Yeah. But um, my brother, though, I, I seem to remember him talking shit about the movie. And he was like, why do you want to see that? <laughs> so, like, um, there was a lot of negative reviews for it. Um, and that movie t- taught me what a pun was. Oh, um, did it? My, I, my brother had to explain to me before we saw it, like, what a pun was. And then I, I was like, oh, oh, that's what those are. <laughs> Arnold's Arnold's dialogue, except for a, except for his, like, one-on-ones with a character, are almost all puns. Yeah, it's all one-liners and, and puns. That He has very little actual dialogue. <laughs> he's terrifying looking, though. I mean, I remember as a kid, like, him as Mr. Freeze in the suit, he's kind of scary. I, I mean, we'll get to this in proper, but I actually like his performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he knows what movie he's in. I think he's actually giving a shit about how he delivers his lines and how he, he does a lot of dramatic head turns and and eye narrows mm-hmm. and stuff. Like he he play, he's playing it up. He's having he's relishing being a villain. And yes, his makeup is quite good. The the contact lenses in particular add quite a bit, um, and the voice modulation you know doesn't bother me as much as i think some people take umbrage with but i i, I happen to like it. i think it sounds kind of cool we should we should mention that looking at these movies through the through the lens of an adult is kind of i think pointless like this isn't you shouldn't really be regarding these movies as adult movies these are kids movies that have some adult themes that just go what right over the kid's head but these are for kids these are kids movies no, I mean we'll we'll get to it, but uh, Batman and Robin, Joel Schumacher, uh, has been quoted numerous times as having been saying on the set literally every take. Remember, folks, this is a cartoon. Yes, we're making a cartoon, and it's it's the '90s too, so we still hadn't quite like '80s and '90s. We hadn't quite determined what a kids' movie is. Like, well, there's cartoons and then there's live action, and you can have both. And you look back at some of the movies, like. I'd say Indiana Jones was for kids, but Heart Rip is not for kids. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that movie is, I believe, cited as the kind of the catalyst for the PG-13, mm-hmm. the necessity of a PG-13 rating. <laughs> like Go- Goonies, I mean, that's 100% a kids movie. I'm like, there's some stuff in there that's not for kids. Like, it was just, it was the culture at the time. It's like, you're like, this, is, this isn't for kids. I'm like, it was, it's just, they, they put it in there thinking that kids weren't going to get it, and they were right. Yeah, um, I mean, we'll, like I said, we're going to be covering both of these movies, but it, right up front, I'll just say, I I feel like the distinction, like the key distinction between both of Joel Schumacher's films is that one, one Batman Forever, has something to say, like has mm-hmm. some material to bring to the table. Batman and Robin is more just kind of like a, a vapid lights with sound show. Yes. Um, it has very little to bring to the table in terms of storytelling or characterization. It's just kind of like colorful fun like i said lights with sound um and there's there there are reasons for that but we'll get into it when we get to it i know what you mentioned i think batman is family first and the that's why mr freeze ends up having kind of a redemption at the end because he was doing this all for his wife and you have the the family element with the uh the batman group but uh poison ivy is the one that's just going solo it's just all about her and she's the one that ends up getting it at the end yeah, no, th- that, that that is a theme that's in there, um, and it strongly connects to Batman because, I mean, the, the notion of Batman and his surrogate family, uh, the Bat family, that uh, Christopher Nolan uh, took a different approach with, uh, but we'll, we'll get to that yeah. next week. 
Um, so I guess, uh, Kyle, you want to give us a plot rundown on Batman Forever from 1995? Yeah, I'm going uh, to give the back of the uh, back of the box uh, back of the box um, plot summary uh, just because the actual plot summary is completely different than the back of the box. So I'm going to find <laughs> the official one real quick. Um, while you wait, I, uh, I just realized like I didn't see any of these Batman in the theater. Uh, I did, however, see all of the Nolan Batman in the theater. Kind of had to. Yeah, I think I have seen all the Batman movies except all the Batman movies that have been released in my lifetime. Uh, to theaters, with the exception of Batman Returns. So this one was written by Kenneth Chris Holm on uh, IMDb, oh, and and the first Batman. I was I was alive in 1989. <laughs> this was written by somebody on uh, IMDb. It says Batman must battle former District Attorney Harvey Dent, who is now Two Face, and Edward Nigma, the Riddler, with help from a, an amorous psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome. An amorous psychologist and a young circus acrobat who becomes his sidekick, Robin. I'll tell you what's wrong with that, Kyle. Hmm. Harvey Dent slash Two-Face and. Yeah, you're right. Uh, flip that, reverse. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, the Riddler is kind of the star of the show. Um, Jim Carrey exploded mm -hmm. um, before this film was released. I mean... This came out in 1995. This was probably filming uh, in 1994. Um, but Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber, mm -hmm. all in a row, had already come out. Uh, so, yeah, his his star was shining as bright as it probably ever has when this came out. When was Liar Liar? Was that 94 too? Uh, 97. Oh, really? Yeah, so a little bit later. Uh, but, yeah, Jim Carrey, even though he's not the biggest face on the poster, um, in terms of marketing, I seem to recall uh, the question mark for sure was uh, integrated even into the bat symbol. Um, the question mark and the green color palette were everywhere mm -hmm. in terms of uh, marketing this film. Um, and it needs to be said, uh, traditionally, Batman films uh, are known to have like gigantic marketing campaigns backing them. And it's largely like holdover from the, the very first Batman film, the, the Tim Burton one, uh, because it worked the first time. Why not? keep doing it every yeah. time and so every time a fucking batman movie comes out we just get this marketing fucking blitz um and anyone anyone and everyone in in any related industry jumps on board it but uh yeah jim carrey is probably given i don't think i don't know if he has the most screen time but the film is certainly structured around his various tangents in this movie <laughs> yes he's the he's the main problem of the film two-face is just kind of a side you're right he's just a sidekick he hasn't He's not really doing anything. He's, I guess he's trying to kill Batman. He actually is doing the most to try to kill Batman. And the Riddler is just causing a problem that Batman's trying to stop. Or figure out that there's a problem. Oh. Well, I was going to say that... Um, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but um, may as well. Uh, this film is interesting to me because uh, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes story. Uh, stuff that didn't make it to the finished product. Um, I don't know how how often this is the case with Batman films. Uh, I don't remember hearing anything like this in the Tim Burton films, um, or the Nolan films for that matter, but both of Schumacher's films have, uh, they're slightly tainted, I guess, hmm. um, by studio interference. 
Um, and it's very public. Like uh, a lot of the a lot of the key players in the production, like a lot of the cast and Schumacher himself. Uh, there's plenty out there floating around if you look for it um, about what Batman Forever and Batman and Robin could have been. Um, so uh, the reason I want to bring it up is because we're in the midst of this Snyder release, the Snyder cut situation, where yeah. we actually are having a secondary cut of a film, or in some people's view, the primary cut of a film released after the fact. Um, due to fan demand we are not getting that for batman forever (laughs) um but there are deleted scenes on the disc um that don't have completed sound and stuff they're they're very raw uh but the writer has gone on record schumacher has gone on record the cast has gone on record saying that batman forever the film that we got is uh not what they shot Hmm. um the original intention was to have a much darker story um, and a lot of it had to do with Two Faces uh, element. Okay. Um, being as, like you said, Two Faces out there t- explicitly to kill Batman. Um, if you ask me from a writing standpoint, that's really sloppy. Being as Robin wants to kill Two Face, mm-hmm. and Two Face wants to kill Batman, so we just have this Congo line of death happening, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, who wants to kill who? Like, because it seems like nobody's going to get what they want here, and in fact, nobody does. Nobody does. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, Two Face, the very first scene in the intended cut of the film was supposed to be him escaping from arkham and and like a prison guard getting hung from a ceiling fan so it was was intended to be pretty fucking dark and yeah there was supposed to be a lot more of him being more more vicious more explicitly out to get batman less less of a clown and then a lot like the majority of the stuff that was cut from the film had to do with um bruce wayne's guilt over his parents death and him coming to grips with the fact that he wasn't responsible for it um and we do get some scenes touching on that a little bit in the finished cut but it all kind of it's very loose it's just kind of like it's there if you want it to be but really the film doesn't seem to give a shit about it Mm -mm. so we'll get into that in more detail i guess as we go but i just wanted to say that up front that like yeah two-face is portrayed as just kind of a hanger-on goon like he he really is totally secondary to the riddler in this he is yeah um but Tommy Lee Jones did have extra scenes that were cut. Well, I was going to say, there. I don't, you said there wasn't a lot of studio interference with the Burtons? Um, not that I'm aware of. Um, I know Batman Returns. I'm pretty sure that's, that's what was intended <laughs> because the studio was not happy with it, which is why they probably dropped the hammer with Schumacher. Hmm. Because say- Batman Forever and especially Batman and Robin were intended to you know, correct any mistakes that the studio thought they had made. I think John Peters was uh, a producer on those first two Batman. Uh, my brother asked me about that. He was like, you know about this uh, producer that uh, worked on Wild Wild West? I'm like, oh yeah. I'm, uh, he guess he listened to something about Wild Wild West being like not not a kid's movie. I'm like, there's some, there's some pretty racy stuff going on in there. But he mentioned John Peters. I'm like, oh, I know him. Um, <laughs> I'm just picturing Batman 89 and like a polar bear is just like wandering <laughs> around the background. It's like, why is that there? It's like, well... John wanted to shoot a scene where Batman has to tangle with a polar bear. It's like, why? It's like, because there's, they're nature's deadliest predator. Didn't you know that? <laughs> um, Our producer has been in 500 street fights. He's been in 500 he knows a thing or two about making the pictures. He knows a thing or two about a thing or two, okay? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Tim Burton was a producer on this. Yes. Maybe, maybe that was, maybe there was some tension there. Uh he didn't seem to take issue with the fact that a Dr. Burton who is made up to look like him is featured in the film. <laughs> uh, 
So maybe he has a sense of humor. Um, I would hope yeah. so. Yeah, the the doctor at Arkham Asylum, Dr. Burton, has his fucking hairdo. <laughs> so it's well, like I'm pretty sure he was okay with a lot. Should we talk about the characters? Because the next thing on my notes is director, quirks, and motifs. If we're going to go ahead and get into that, we could probably get into it at the top. I don't know. It's probably going to be the bulk of the conversation. But do you want to talk about the characters and Batman first? Goons. Yeah, let's, let's do characters and circle around. That's a good idea. <laughs> like, we can collect our thoughts as yeah. we go. Um, so batman of course you yes. want to start things off yes i still still think that michael keaton's my favorite batman because uh, that was you know as an adult even as a kid i think that he has a nice edge to him as batman val kilmer i i like as bruce wayne i think he gets the bumbliness like you had mentioned with uh with michael keaton's batman he's kind of just awkward i think val kilmer captures that pretty well i don't like his batman okay how do you feel about do you have- that do you have more? Okay. Um, so I I vacillate back and forth between Keaton and Bale as mm-hmm. my favorite Bat- Batmans slash Bruce Wayne. They both bring quite a bit to the table. Um, depending on my mood, I'll jump back and forth between the two of them. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm wishy-washy. I do that. Um, but, yeah, Val Kilmer was a very strange choice for me. Um Because he is a talented actor, but he's a very strange actor. Mm-hmm. Um, he's... He, like inarguably talented though yes um i feel like his bruce wayne is very self-assured in public which i thought was very cool like when he goes to uh, when he meets uh edward nigma mm-hmm. and and ed begley jr who you yes. ca- apparently can't make a movie without featuring because <laughs> he isn't everything <laughs> um when he goes to you know when he's doing the company rounds and stuff at wayne enterprises and stuff I like how straight his posture is. Mm-hmm. I like that he wears glasses in public. Um, his hair is immaculate. Um, he's Val Kilmer. He's a very handsome man, and he behaves as such. He seems he seems like the head of the company, and that's refreshing. I don't think we've seen Bruce Wayne like that because Michael Keaton, aside from dealing with Max Schreck in Batman Returns, mm-hmm. his Bruce Wayne was mostly kind of socially awkward. Um, but when he meets uh, Dr. Chase Meridian, uh, Nicole Kidman, he's, like you said, bumbling, and mm. he kind of goes back into that Michael Keaton mode where he's he's kind of off balance, and I love when he knocks her door down and yeah. <laughs> he struggles to put it back up. That's some good physical comedy. Um, but his Batman, I don't know if it's intentional, but he has some legitimately, like, laugh-out-loud moments. Yeah, he's... I don't know what it is about... He just... He doesn't have that... He doesn't have that edge to him. I think it's his eyes. Mm-hmm. He actually has kind of like predatory eyes. I can see that. It's his lips. His lips are too big. He's got too, like, they're too pronounced. They just... Yeah, he, he has kissable lips yeah. for sure. Um, he, he He's very handsome even with the mask. So mm-hmm. it's like, mm, yeah. disarming Batman. <laughs> like, for sure. But uh, his eyes to me come across as kind of predatory, actually. Like, if you look at his Doc Holliday, he is dead behind the eyes. That's that true, movie. yeah. Um, it's kind of scary. Like he puts you, he puts you off kilter. And for Batman, that kind of makes sense. But when you, as compared to like Michael Keaton or Christian Bale, I don't know. Like, there's that phrase: the eyes are the windows into the soul. Mm-hmm. With Val Kilmer, it's like he's effective because it almost feels like there is no soul there. Whereas the other guys I just mentioned, like you see the humanity there, and on camera it just plays better. I think with those other guys. Um, the intentional, unintentional bits of comedy that I'm talking about are, of course, 
the amazing thumbs up from the from the Batwing. Where he turns his whole body. Yes. Yes. That that is one of the most amazing gifts in cinema history. Is is him giving the thumbs up to Commissioner Gordon, uh, also again played by Pat Hingle. Um, but the other one is uh, uh, when we get the uh, uh, was it holy rusted metal Batman? Yeah. Um, and his reaction because the holy oh. rusted metal thing is obviously a callback to you know the. Batman 1966, the television show. Um, but his reaction is like, huh? <laughs> he he literally, Batman says, huh? It's not what, it's huh? <laughs> and, the, and then he says, holy, like it's full of holes. And he says, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's just like, huh? Oh. <laughs> he just comes across as such an idiot. It's a nice beat if you're, if you were a fan of, if you're like an adult who watched the TV show when you were younger, like, yeah, I guess it's kind of fun. But as kids, you're just like, I don't, I don't understand this. Yeah, and I I don't want to do this for every single fucking character and, and every beat of this conversation, but I will mention that uh, the deleted scenes uh, may have been the reason why Val Kilmer was cast, actually. Hmm. All the stuff that didn't make it into the movie. <laughs> uh, because his tool set as an actor. Um, all the like A lot of the deleted scenes, like I said, have to deal with, with um, his guilt and his fear. A lot of it is guilt and fear. Uh, things that Val Kilmer is very capable of expressing. Mm-hmm. Things that in the finished cut of the film, he's not asked to ex- express at any point, really. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of like sustained close-ups of him like dealing with his emotions and like almost like crying on, on command. Mm. And it comes across, you kind of feel for him. Like he's giving a fucking performance. Um, but again, that's on the cutting room floor. And um, what I'm talking about, the guilt of his parents, is that I you know the uh the prop the the red book mm-hmm. uh, we see the dream sequence at his parents wake and stuff um in the deleted content i guess what happened is he ran away from the wake um and the red book was his father's diary and i guess uh while he was distraught he misread it saying oh we wanted to stay in but bruce demanded we go see this movie tonight and that was the last diary entry and uh, the, the culmination of his story arc in Batman Forever is supposed to be that he realizes that he hallucinated that last line. He misread it mm. as a child. So all this guilt, all this burden of, of feeling responsible for his parents having gone out that night, having been out in the streets of Gotham the night they were shot, um, in actuality, it wasn't his fault. Like, the way it was written was different. It just said, like, oh, we all decided we, we were all happy to do it. It wasn't Bruce's fault. And he has this, it wasn't my fault moment. <laughs> and then we get uh, this animat- just giant animatronic bat that we see in, like, one shot of the movie. Yeah, um, I know what it's you're talking the, about. It's when the Riddler is freaking out at the end. Um, but we get it in all its glory. It's an amazing animatronic prop. I think it was made by Rick Baker. And uh, we have this highly visually symbolic moment where he, like, outstretches his arms and, like, mirrors the, the movements of the bat. And then he comes out of this cave and we have this really awkward exchange with Alfred where he's like, are you okay, Master Bruce? And he's like, I'm Batman. I'm Batman. <laughs> and it's like, I, I think he may have cracked even worse. He cracked. <laughs> um, also, uh, a dumb thing that was cut from the film. Uh, the scene when they invade uh, Wayne Manor, mm-hmm. uh, when he's shot, he gets shot in the fucking head. Yeah. It gives him amnesia in the, oh, in the deleted content. <laughs> I'm so gl- I'm glad they cut that. Yeah, yeah. Cut I'm glad they out. cut. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say about? Uh, well, did 
Did you want to talk about the bat suit if you didn't have anything else to say about Val? Yeah, and actually it's a um it's it looks like the bat suit from eighty nine, the yellow like the yellow on it, just a little yep. more cut up, a little more a little more shredded. He's been doing a little paleo uh, <laughs> a bit more since then, cut out the carbs. Um, and then it's a different bat suit later, and I remember all my toys and everything, and I went as I don't think I went as Batman. I had a neighbor. I actually have a a photo of a black and white photo of me with my uh, next door neighbors. Uh, one one is Catwoman, and then her older brother Dex went as uh, Robin, and he has like the Chris O'Donnell uh, Robin costume, and I'm a ninja. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I am a ninja. Um, what was the question? Oh, uh, bat suit, bat gadgets, and whatnot. The ga- um, the gadget. There's. <laughs> The gadgets are really quick. Like we, they're. I think they're kind of bookended. Like we just kind of see it with. Actually, no. There is quite a bit of gadgets, and there's a, quite a bit of car maneuvering too. Uh, there's one shot where Tommy Lee Jones or Two Face shoots an RPG at the at the Batmobile, and I always thought he like his car just moved like the front wheels. No, the entire car is just moving over to the left, which is uh, kind of cool. And I never noticed if you watch one of those shots when the bad guy car is about to get blown up you can see the thing moving over still <laughs> um but the bat suit the, the bat suit later is fucking cool like it it's like we're updating the bat suit now yeah um this this came about largely as a consequence from what i can tell um due to merchandising mm-hmm. which is something that you cannot talk about batman films without talking about um it's supposed to be like a sonar suit or something mm-hmm. um from a utilitarian standpoint, it makes zero fucking sense. Yeah, no. um, it it's frustrating to me. It does look kind of cool. Um, it is interesting that it has the the eye covers, the lenses, and it has the silver highlights and stuff. So it is a different look for Batman. And you know, in the comics and stuff, it is pretty common for Batman to do the Iron Man thing, where he he brings the right tool for the job. You mm-hmm. know, he has different suits, different gadgets for whatever he needs to be doing. Um, in the film, it seems to come into play largely because uh, the Batcave kind of got blowed up, <laughs> so so he had to go to like his secondary like prototype suit or something. Um, but yeah, this is a there is some holdover uh, from the Tim Burton era of suit design, where like you said, the the yellow shield, which I don't think we talked about last week, but yeah, the the iconic yellow bat emblem is still in the center of the chest. Um, this would be the last film, I believe, that they yeah. had it in um, before the. George Clooney suit just still has the bat symbol, but the yellow's removed from it. Um, but yeah, it bears quite a strong resemblance to what came before. Like you said, he's more cut up, and yeah, the, the gadgets uh, are very seldom like drawn attention to. I guess like like they just kind of come and go, um, and you just kind of have to go with the movie. It's actually kind of nice that they don't like zoom the camera in on it and show them in all their glory all the time it's just like no batman's you know the bit he's busy god damn it yeah. <laughs> like, you got shit to do like the first gadget i think we see is uh he has some sort of like splash gun that like makes people make <laughs> gurgly noises <laughs> it's like an i don't know if it's supposed to be like a taser or if i guess or if it's like the what is it the Austin Powers clothes shrinking gun or whatever. <laughs> no, or is that Undercover Brother? I think. I think that's Undercover Brother. Yeah, yeah where he has a gun that shrinks fabric. <laughs> yeah. It's um, very useful for dismantling the opposition. Yeah, he's got like a oh, I forget what it's called. Oliver Platt uses something like it in that Three Musketeers. Uh, yeah, the thing that wraps around basically. Yeah. 
Um, of course, you've got your your grappling hook and whatever the thing is that shoots it. I don't know if that has a name. Uh, yeah, just hook launcher, yeah. grappling gun. Uh, yeah, <laughs> grappling gun. There we go. There you go. <laughs> you got that. You've got the new. You got the bat wing, and then you got the boat. You've got uh, boat's kind of lame. Yeah, the boat is. Boat. Lame. The boat is literally just a speedboat. I um, I had <laughs> this was the Batmobile that I had was the one in this movie the okay yeah what what do you think about it compared to the the Burton design I like I like the Burton ones but I think maybe just because this was this was the foundation for Batman for me this was the first one I'm always gonna really like this one I like the lights underneath I just think it was a cool design yeah it's kind of interesting because uh, the the swirling kind of like light under a water like a source of water mm-hmm. is kind of a very strong visual motif in this film uh both of the schumacher films just it constantly feels like the walls are just splashed with swirling lights mm-hmm. um having that embedded into the batman uh, the batmobile design seems to be like a good aesthetic choice where it's it's very cohesive um the, the one thing i don't like about it is the goofy spoiler because <laughs> oh, like you can see it like you can see it like bobbing around it looks chintzy oh. it, look, it looks flimsy but it from a design standpoint when it's not moving yeah it looks pretty fucking sleek yeah. yeah it's more angular it has like a more pointed edge to it, it has more sharp points um the other characters like uh, this is the only batman movie that has a legit robin like, i mean the these two batman movies are the only ones with legit robin iterations uh this isn't I don't remember seeing the bat. I don't remember seeing Robin in the Batman the animated series. So this is like the only person we have to kind of talk about Robin, I guess. Um, I, instead of like comparing him to other iterations, I was just gonna say I think Chris O'Donnell actually. I actually kind of like him as Robin. I think he's pretty good as an actor. Yeah, I don't mind him at all. I think I think people that are angry at him in these movies are directing their anger to the wrong person. Yeah. Um, I thought he was fine, especially since, like you said, there's no real competition, at least in live action. He yeah. was in the animated series. Yeah. Um, he didn't show up right away, though. And so, it, I, if I remember right, he just kind of shows up unannounced. Yeah. And I, it's kind of fun because we, we actually do the Robin origin story in the animated series. But if I remember correctly, like it happens out of order. Hmm. So we, we get to it when we get to it. But he just kind of shows up in one of the episodes. It's like, oh, okay. you're here? Okay. <laughs> you see, I don't remember. I remember seeing him in a few episodes, but I, like I said, I haven't seen that show since I was a kid, really, so I don't remember when he popped up. Uh, I think he's doing... I, I like him in this one. I don't like him so much in the second, in the, in the next one um, because his motivation here is pretty clear. He just watched his family die. He does a pretty good job of uh, reacting emotionally to that, having a few breakdowns, um, and his, his bloodlust, basically, to get uh, Two-Face is... It's a good character motivation. Yeah, no, Chris O'Donnell does a pretty good job with that. I think the problem with him and Batman Robin is that he's written too young. Like, he's written like he's a child. Yeah. And and it's silly, because he is not. No, he's like, like he's not even years old. <laughs> he's not even, like, Ralph Macchio young. Like, he's he's just old at that yeah. point. <laughs> like, he is a man. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from. Like, he... I like that we get his entire story from beginning to end, kind of. Like, mm-hmm. his arc, where uh, we get his introduction uh, as being part of the flying graysons uh, part of the circus troupe then like you said uh, two-face was responsible for the whole death of his family obviously he's not too happy about that and i like that uh there's constant like that like pushback because bruce is like trying to like Mm -hmm. 
let him know that it's like you know i do know what you're feeling but i i can't really just like come out and say it i'm trying to get you to realize that it's like i'm trying to help you god damn <laughs> but it is interesting seeing the interplay between them where it's like val kilmer's bruce wayne is warm but to only as far as he feels comfortable being warm where mm-hmm. it's like he he's not willing to share the fact that he's batman but he kind of desperately wants to because he he sees himself in in the future robin and he's mm. like kid i know exactly what you feel but i can't exactly talk about it mm-hmm. in explicit detail because batman <laughs> and even at one point when he finds out who he like he you know he finds the bat cave and he ends up saving him he saves uh batman from one of the many two-face uh two-face attacks michael go like or alfred he's sitting there he's like he's like i, I Batman tells him, like, I can stop you, and he's just, it's kind of an awkward moment, and he's like, well, you know, he probably needs guidance, which is something that you should understand. He's like, instead of just trying to push him out and say he can't do something because he's wanting to seek revenge, you of all people should know that somebody in this situation needs guidance. And I'm like, that's nice. That That's a, it's good. It's a good dad moment. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's interesting because, like I said, the, the central story of the film was intended to be about Bruce and kind of coming to terms with his problems but at the same time he's approached with this person who's younger and lacks his perspective and experience where it's like hmm maybe you could save him some of the headaches by you know telling him that batmaning ain't what it ain't what it all looks like <laughs> like it, it ain't all fun and games man <laughs> um I'd say that this is also the only iteration I've ever seen of the Riddler. I don't remember the Riddler in the animated series. I'm sure he's there, but I remember his I remember his uh, costume. It's just I don't remember him at all. So this is also my only Riddler. So trivia fact: this is a fun one for you, Robert William, um, Robin Williams. Well, I, most people know that. But okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Robin Williams was fingered to be the Riddler at one point. Um, I believe Joel Schumacher wanted him. Um, Joel Schumacher goes on, he goes on record saying that he oftentimes approaches big projects like this like with exactly like one person in mind mm-hmm. for most of his roles um, so that's not good <laughs> but uh, no the, the fun trivia thing is that uh, he, the Riddler was in the animated series um, and he was voiced by John Glover mm. who Tim Burton wanted to be the Joker and who ends up in Batman and Robin as a mad scientist. That is the biggest misstep in that movie, was not having more of him. Because he has my favorite scene in that whole movie, is him pushing Uma Thurman. I was like, well, I guess you'll have to die. <laughs> he just screams. It's so fun. I laughed out loud watching it last night. No, John John Glover, is he's tremendous. He's mm-hmm. a, he is a joy every time he's on screen. Yes. Gremlins 2 is like catapulted into the stratosphere in terms of entertainment value largely because of his mr clamp him (laughs) him and scrooge uh i actually really liked him in payback he's like the number two to the little short mobster no he he's great in everything but yeah um that's a trivia factoid that's kind of fun but yeah jim carrey's riddler um what, what how do you feel about this performance kyle um, I think that they, I think they had uh, good intentions. I think that I like, I like the idea of the Riddler being like kind of a cocky, kind of like a Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. He's like I'm way smarter than everybody else, and I have this awesome idea. And then when he's like not even given the chance really to illustrate what he's capable of, it turns him into like it, that's the, that's what pushes him over. He's like this was his big moment. This is what he's been building up to, and now the guy just says, "Yeah, you can go fuck yourself," basically, and. 
that turns you into a villain. He doesn't have... I can't think of a movie where Jim Carrey's played like a bad guy. I just don't think he has it in his in in his uh, in his toolbox. He has dramatic roles that are are good, but him being evil is just not there. So he's not evil in the in the movie. Like you just don't see him as a villain, really. Yeah, I think that's that irritates me because I'm I like my my hero and villain dynamics to be kind of black and white. I've gone on record yeah. saying that. That's like I'm I'm tired of empathizing with my villains yeah, I, I i miss movies where you show up and you spend two hours just wanting that guy to get punched like that's so rare these days you know who's making villains great again there you go mm. that's <laughs> no um south korea is making villains great again that's that's who's doing it because yeah. revenge is a theme in south korean cinema <laughs> and they do it fucking well man <laughs> but um yeah jim carrey um it's an interesting performance. Uh, it's it's written in an interesting way, um, and a lot of it comes down to subtext, I guess, um, because his performance, like you said, it's it's he's Jim carrying the fuck out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell that. Um, well, actually, you can tell in the finished product, but like watching the behind the scenes stuff about this film, um, everyone kind of tiptoed around the subject of uh, Jim Carrey having Joel Schumacher's ear for much of the production. Mm. Um, he was allowed to improvise a lot and a lot of it came down to him just saying like, Hey, Joel, uh, how about I try this? And Joel Schumacher being like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And everybody else just being like, okay, (laughs) like you can actually, you can actually see Tommy Lee Jones checking the fuck out in certain scenes in this film. If you go, if you, you can catch clips of the Riddler in that Batman, uh, the, the bat, the Adam West Batman movie. He is goofy. Like, he's a very goofy guy. So it makes sense that if you wanted to have, like, a goofy Riddler, you would get the goofiest person possible. (laughs) Um, But I can also see where Robin Williams would have been a little bit of a better choice. Because he's definitely played a bad guy before. And I think Robin Williams is actually capable of doing that. Uh, He's also, he can do a little bit of both. I think he would have done a better job at having a sinister side than Jim Carrey is all. Yes, I, I I agree. I would have loved to have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I want to say, I mean, I don't know what this says about me, but I I always preferred his brand of comedy over Jim Carrey. Like even as a kid, like I said, I I liked the mask mostly because of the CGI and stuff, mm-hmm. and and you know the swing music and whatnot. Um, Ace Ventura. I don't even think I saw the first one until several years after the second one uh, came out and everything. Uh, so that one it's it's just like a a fart in the wind for me but robin williams like mrs doubtfire was a big fucking deal in my household Mm -hmm. yeah very much well they're two they're both very high they're both high energy performers but jim carrey is physical comedy and that just doesn't translate to adult like adults it just it's just not as funny robin williams was funny because he was high energy and just very quick-witted and he had a lot of voices but even as an adult you can go back to some of his comedic roles and they're still funny see now i'm trying to picture what this would look like the exact same movie just with robin williams and you'd have to adjust the framing for everything because Mm -hmm. he's a half foot shorter yes um all the costumes would have to be retailored because he has about two inches of fur Mm -hmm. um (laughs) that that would change his silhouette entirely 
Uh, Robin Williams in skin-tight clothing would probably be terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking, terrifying. It's like he has all these strange bulges, and like he's like his whole body is just covered in bumps. He looks like a fucking chimp. Like he's he's got like uh, like his broad shoulders and no neck. And, and then if he gets into like animating and moving quickly, he has even less of a neck, and he's hairy. I'm like yeah, he got he looks like a chimpanzee. Oh yeah, and he'd be sweating through the fabric yes. profusely, and uh, yeah. Yeah, his whole body, like this, the whole spandex bodysuit would have the texture of Will Ferrell's chest hair. I'm um, <laughs> trying to project what his performance would be on the scenes in particular. I want to just try to, like, just try to think of one in particular. Think of him going around the Batcave and destroying stuff. What would that have looked like with Robin Williams? <sighs> um, it's hard to imagine. See, that's a difficult one because Jim Carrey, I think that's one of his best scenes in the movie mm-hmm. because, like you said, physical. Just physical. Um, his his b- coordination of, of mind to body mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, some of the some of the gags he does just with his body language, I don't give a shit about what he's saying. It's yeah. all just, you know, it's he could just be making noises, um, but just the contortions of his face and the timing of his, like, it's like the Chris Farley thing where you get real loud at yeah. the end. <laughs> like he's an expert at that, but it doesn't matter what he's saying. It's none of it's written particularly well or anything like that. It's just simple, basic, like childish innuendos and stuff. But like him doing the baseball gag and like the way he like hikes up his crotch and mm-hmm. spits. Yeah. It's you can like picture it perfectly. It's like, yes, that is an MLB pitcher right there. Yeah. Like, he does do a good job. Yeah, uh, and and all the stuff he does with the cane twirling and stuff, it's he practiced for sure, and it looks it looks amazing. Like he he really is an amazing physical performer. Mm. It's just um, yeah, going back, it was difficult to digest. I'm like, this is kind of tough. Well, now I can't like picture because Robin Williams and like some of his later specials and stuff made liberal use of water bottles like keep picturing his riddler just yes. having a waterfall he needed the water he stopped doing cocaine in the 80s i think but he still had to hydrate like crazy in life no, he would hydrate but he also used the water bottle as a prop mm-hmm. and, was, and he was very coordinated in that way but yeah that that's one of those things i would have loved to have seen in fact i probably would have liked it better probably um but going back to the the way the character's written so edward Nigma. um not terribly familiar with the Riddler in the comics, actually. No. Um, I've read many a Batman comic. Very seldom has the Riddler popped up in said comics. Um, but uh, he is apparently in the Matt Reeves' The Batman that's upcoming. Mm. Uh, delayed again because of COVID and uh, Robert Pattinson catching said COVID. Uh, but um, what's interesting about this interpretation of the Riddler is that we come at him at this specific key moment in the character's life wherein he's already starting to to walk towards psychopathy yeah and uh it's potentially super villainy um so he's already kind of laid down the foundation for transitioning into that that way of life um when we first meet him and like you said he works at wayne enterprises he has this uh amazing idea for a device that it's like a it's like a a box that connects to your television connects to your brain yeah um which creates a two-way transmission and uh it just raises too many questions yeah as uh, bruce wayne says to him um and denies him his funding and whatnot um what's interesting though is that he has uh an infatuation with bruce wayne mm-hmm. specifically bruce wayne not not just men or or um fame and glory but specifically the person of bruce wayne um, who he who he is he is employed by, 
um, and has the potential of receiving great funding and support from. Like you said, he's denied that, and that's what pushes him into becoming this Riddler character. Yeah. Um, we get to see the step-by-step transition of him uh, uh, killing his boss, uh, discovering a secondary use for his box device, which, in turn, like as Bruce Wayne had predicted, has some nefarious uses. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know he starts like writing serial killer letters to him, like love letters, as Bruce Wayne calls them at one point. I really like those. I like we do get to see him like putting the uh, rubber cement and like making them. But I don't know. I really like those. I think that was one of my favorite parts of the movie as a kid. I don't know why. I thought those were the neatest thing. Well, from a production design design standpoint, and we'll get to this in more detail, I guess, when we get to it. But um, his his lair, uh, his original lair with the. Uh, was it the Zoltan machine or Zoltar machine? Uh, yeah, um, it's interesting because it's uh, it's a sad, sad apartment. It's a sad, uh, really, it, I kind of liked it. It reminded me a little bit. For some reason, it reminded me of Mel Gibson's apartment conspiracy theory, where it's just this <laughs> sad guy. But it's very narrow. But it looks like he has. It's like a like a, a tiny house kind of thing where he has a ladder up to his bed, and I'm like, oh, I want to see what that. That's that's gonna be the game changer. I'm like, what does it look like up there? I, I don't know. I kind of liked his exposed brick little apartment. It reminded me of uh, the office in the midway point of Brazil. Mm, um, yes, you know where they have the shared yeah. desk. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. But um, I thought it came across as like kind of sad. But what I'm getting at here is that um, the character of the Riddler, like all of his supervillain antics aside, like if you really, really, really break it down, it comes across almost like a jilted lover in some ways, mm-hmm. because at the midway point in the movie he's he's not just wearing the riddler outfit and hanging out with two-face and whatnot he's gotten his hair cut and his hair mm. done in such a way as to look exactly like bruce wayne thank god i hated his fucking hair at the beginning <laughs> oh yeah the the orange fright wig he looks like harry from dumb and dumber <laughs> he's got the yeah except for it's like red. it's like flame orange yeah and it's, it's distracting yes it's it's, it's kind of annoying but um but yeah, he makes himself up to look exactly like Bruce Wayne. He founds a company. He breaks ground. He makes a factory to manufacture. So he's basically like getting back at Bruce Wayne by becoming Bruce Wayne in mm-hmm. some way. Um, so he's kind of like flipping him the bird, but in a very passive aggressive way. And then it, it comes to a head when they meet at the, the, the dance party or whatever. And he's like, hey, <laughs> look what I did. <laughs> I got a makeover. <laughs> um. Two-Face, now we don't get his origin story, but we do have a very problematic scene with him. So with Two-Face, it makes sense that we wouldn't have as in-depth of a background story with him because we're doing a background story on Robin and a background story on Riddler and like how they get to where they are. Two-Face is just a bad guy from the beginning. And we get a very, there's a very weird scene where we, we see where he's District Attorney Harvey Dent and where he gets his Two-Face from this guy has acid just in the courtroom, which that's not going to happen. But what the <laughs> fuck was Batman doing in the courtroom? Like, he just kind of pops up out of nowhere. It's the goofiest thing. Yeah, I'm picturing him just, like, taking a seat in the back of the court. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> waiting for what to happen. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's. I'm sure, like you know, it's a public hearing and whatnot. And there's probably an old lady, maybe, maybe like the person who's on trial, like their mom or something. He's like, "Excuse me." <laughs> um, I actually, I I like Tommy Lee Jones. I like when he has high energy performances, but he's a little, he's a little too high energy in this. Like, I, I like his little moments in like Men in Black, where he mostly he's just kind of like, 
monotone and flat, but he has moments where he's elevated. Eat me! Yeah. <laughs> or in Under Siege, where he, at the beginning, he's very high energy because he's that he's the bad guy, but then he, he after his little facade is uh, gone, and he just turns into the villain, which is nice. Here, he's a little too high energy throughout, but he does have little moments of being evil. Yeah, um, this is an unfortunate performance, because Tommy Lee Jones is a magnificent performer. Um, he's a fantastic actor. I you know, there there are times when he phones it in and stuff. We're we're all guilty of that and yeah. stuff. But um I think the problem is that because we're um kind of doing a project that has a more in common, like from an aesthetic and tone standpoint to uh, the Batman sixty six television show, mm-hmm. because we're doing a, a campier Batman this time around, uh, and because Jim Carrey is, you know, blowing the roof off of the place with his energy. Yeah. Um, he probably was under some pressure to keep up with that. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, and because of the campy tone, you know, he has to be bouncy and cartoony and stuff. But it comes across as slightly too similar to, like, what you would think of as the Joker. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily Jack Nicholson's Joker, but just, like, you know, the Cesar Romero Joker. Like, ha, ha, ha. Like, he's doing a lot of that kind of shit where it's like, I can tell you're just doing that because you, you're waiting to say your line and Jim Carrey won't shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're just killing time. You're doing the equivalent of like in a Jackie Chan movie where like doing the putty patrol thing where yeah. you're like you're darting in and out. In the face, yeah. <laughs> you're waiting to get hit. You're waiting for your turn to get kicked. This is the part where you fall down. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I agree though. Um, I like when he gets a chance, when he gets some dedicated screen time to hop back and forth between his two different sides. Because when he becomes more serious, he actually is kind of menacing. Yeah, he is. I do like, and I like that he plays up the fact that he is a former DA, mm-hmm. and like he has a couple of moments of like lucidity where he's he sounds like he's holding court, like literally holding court. Yeah, and like it, it's kind of cool. I like that, but he doesn't do that very often. It's like two or three times in the whole movie. Uh, I like his design, but uh, I like I like his outfit. I think that he's it, it's really cartoonish. It's just really nice. Um, but I think the he kind of keeps a little bit of the dark comedy element that uh, was in the first Batman, the Batman '89, where when the guy's like face and Batman is on the on the <laughs> windshield of the helicopter and he just starts shooting at him and he ends up killing the goon like he doesn't even give a shit. I'm like that's kind of dark he just just straight up murdered a guy (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that that was fun i i guess they i think they were trying to give give him some extra weight as a as a villain because like you said jim carrey's performance as the riddler is very hard to look at as a villainous performance so it's Mm -hmm. like we need we need somebody to actually seem like they're up to no good (laughs) may as well be two-faced um but yeah i i do like that he he tries to like show both sides of himself the the makeup is by rick baker so of course it's fantastic um (laughs) the color palette is a little obnoxious if you ask me it makes me think of power rangers and ivan ooze and stuff because it's like that neon purple pink Mm -hmm. um which in 1995 the hot pink crayon was the crayon that all the kids fought over all the rage yeah yeah hot pink was in man (laughs) but um yeah, and the from a costuming standpoint, both of them are actually represented very, very well. Mm-hmm. Actually, every costume in th- this movie, uh, from just like you know, paying homage to the source material, it's outlandish, it's campy, but it's cohesive and it fits the film. 
Um, and yeah, the the split suit down the middle with like animal print on one side and like a, a dapper like sh- shark skin suit or whatever on the other side. Yeah, that's fucking Two Face. I think that the the problem is is with the directors. Like Burton never tackled Two Face. He had Harvey Dent, but he never had Two Face. Schumacher tried Two Face. It's fine. And I don't like. I do not like Aaron Eckhart's Two Face. I like Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent, as I mentioned. I think he's good at that. But I don't like his Two Face, and he's not there long enough. And I think. I think maybe the CGI face kind of takes it away from me as well. But I think with this with the new Batman that we have coming out the 2021 Batman, I think that we could under this director just from the grittiness of it, like how dark it looks, I think we could probably get a decent two-face out of him. I mean, the the aesthetic of the trailer um points to them having their head on their shoulders seems like they know what they're doing um i have quite a bit to say about that trailer i don't want to get into it right now being as we're talking about yeah. the schumacher films which are bright and poppy. totally <laughs> bright and different. fucking poppy <laughs> it's totally fucking different um but i'll just long story short i'll just say yes if they did attempt a two-face in that particular vision of gotham I think he could do some fun stuff with it. Mm-hmm. Because Two-Face is one of those characters that, yes, he originated in the campier era of the comics. Um, but in more recent years, he's typically been represented as kind of a pitch-black character. Mm-hmm. He's usually one of the more serious Batman villains in that uh, something that this movie doesn't bother to do. Um, the script clumsily tries to reference it. I think it was a dumb move on their part because it doesn't make sense to the viewer. Um, they try to bring in the personal connection between the two mm-hmm. because Bruce Wayne and and Harvey Dent usually usually have a personal connection outside of their superhero and supervillain uh, personas. Um, in this movie, one of the last things that uh, Two Face says is like, "Bruce, you were always a good friend." Yeah, it's like since fucking when? Like I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that and it it kind of makes sense uh now that I, I'm like I didn't realize. I thought it was just kind of being um like th- I guess theatrical. I get like just kind of being funny in the moment. He's like about to kill these people and he's like, "Oh, that's right, Bruce, you've always been a good friend." Uh yeah. I just thought it was like a funny way. I'm like, yeah, that makes more sense now that they would have a background like yeah, they're friends cuz yeah, in Batman um which one's that one? That's the one with the Joker, Dark Knight. They're actually kind of, she says, be nice to him. You know, he's a friend. It's nice. Yeah, but he, he likes Harvey Dent. Yeah, he he actually strongly supports him. But because of his his facade as Bruce Wayne, he's pretending to not like him. But in actuality, it's like, no, actually, you're, you're the person that I can't be. So I'm going to support you all the way. But yeah, typically, Two-Face and Bruce Wayne, they know each other. So they have history together, which is why Batman is always in anguish whenever he comes into conflict with him because he's like i like you harvey but i have to punch you now (laughs) if you think i'm like i'm thinking about the character of harvey dent he's a former prosecutor and to be a very like or yeah to uh or district attorney he's the district attorney so yeah he's a he's more or less a prosecutor so he it his motivation as a villain would be the system like you would think he would be going against he wouldn't be helping bad guys. He's going against people who were, you would think he'd be going against people who were corrupt. So I don't really know what he, what happened to damage him there. He's now, he's just going after Batman. No, like he's just here because he's a name in the Mm -hmm. comics. Um, It's a, he's grossly miscast in terms of the themes of the story. Like Two-Face doesn't, although, you know, if they did a better job of building it up and Two-Face is like 
he's a disparate element of the script that somebody needed to do a second second draft of this or a third draft or whatever because he does fit in a little bit in that like i said on the cutting room floor we have a lot of material about bruce wayne feeling guilt um you could pile on uh, in the sense that uh Harvey Dent also represents additional guilt. It's a failure on Batman's part to spare him, you know, the facial scarring and whatnot that would turn him into Two-Face. But again, by the end of this movie, like, if you look at the movie in a vacuum, it's like, oh, I barely knew that they even had a connection. So, yeah. like, if you if the script can't be bothered with it, then I can't either. But in the comics, this would make perfect sense. But, um, yeah, he's just here because we needed a villain, and for some reason somebody <laughs> flipped a coin, mm. <laughs> yeah. wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and uh, they came up with Two-Face, I guess. But um, I'll just say it straight up. Uh, a big reason why this particular era of the live-action Batman films um, probably didn't resonate with a lot of people as, as strongly as maybe the Burton films did was because of the ba- the animated series. Mm. Um, because every single one of these characters is represented so much better in that show, uh, Two-Face in particular. Um, his, I don't remember if it was a two-parter. I think it was. <laughs> two-parter. <laughs> um, but his uh, origin story in the show was incredible. It's one of the better one of the better sequences in that show, wherein uh, we get several episodes where Harvey Dent is just Harvey Dent in that show. I'm kidding. And he and Bruce pal around, and Harvey Dent's a fucking horn dog, and <laughs> Bruce has to restrain him and stuff. <laughs> but then there's a, a whole episode, or maybe even two episodes back to back, dedicated to him uh, getting his face damaged in an explosion and uh, becoming a psychopath. Um, and needs to be said, uh, Richard Mole's uh, voice for Two Face was incredible. Um, and it's interesting too because he only had one voice. You know, he mm. didn't jump back and forth between, like, Sweet Harvey and Two-Face. He was always Two-Face. <laughs> um, she's not a... I don't know if she's a character in the comics, but Chase Meridian, I just wanted to mention real quick. Uh, she is super horny for Batman. I think it's supposed <laughs> to be guised as a... Like, she's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so she's interested in him from that standpoint. I don't think that's the case. I think she's saying that. <laughs> I think she's just horny for Batman. Um, Nicole Kidman, this like her her performance. It's kind of like Re- Rebecca De Mornay in uh, Three Musketeers, where it's like, wait a minute, she's this is the wrong kind of movie. Like this is kind of supposed to be. This is a Disney movie. This is for kids. Why <laughs> why is she here? Why why she's way too horny for this. <laughs> Yeah, um, last thing I wanted to say about Two-Face, though, is that the reason he's here is because the producer um, worked on both Under Siege and, and The Fugitive. Ah. So. Put your hands like, together. <laughs> yeah, like like Jim Carrey, you know, being on top of the world at this moment in time, Tommy Lee Jones was as well. That makes sense, yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> Dr. Chase Meridian, I don't believe is from the comics. Okay. I, th- I think she was manufactured specifically for this movie. And, yeah. Uh, from frame one, like when she is initially introduced into this film, she is just sopping wet for fucking Batman. She is. I'm sorry. Like Nicole Kidman is gorgeous. I, I I don't know why she doesn't get mentioned more often, but I think she is Stone Cold Fox, and she is hot as she is hot as fuck in this movie. <laughs> no, she she is a knockout in this Ooh, movie. Yes, um, her her hair and makeup in this film is 
stellar. Mm-hmm. I hope I hope that person got tipped handily. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, put it this way: she is she is hot to the point that she's one of those actresses that has to take a lot of roles where she's dressed down. Yeah, <laughs> hours. I remember seeing that. Yeah, it's it's, it's like you know they had to put Charlie's, a fake nose Charlie's on her. <laughs> Yeah, it's like Charlie's Theron, where it's like, in order for Hollywood to take me seriously, I need to do an ugly movie. Or like Mila Jovovich, where it's like, God damn it, I'm going to do most of my movies specifically so I can look ugly, so people will take me seriously. I was going to say, Nicole Kidman was still a smoke show in uh, in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And she's, I think she's well into her late 40s, or, or I think she's in her 50s there. Easily. I mean, I, I could do without the, the wig in uh, Aquaman, but um, <laughs> still, still rocking it. But... Um, yeah, uh, she is very, very horny for Batman. Uh, she's a psychologist, and uh, we we do the thing. We do the dance again where she meets Batman. She really wants Batman. Mm-hmm. She apparently came out of the woodwork specifically for Batman, um, but we're doing the dance where Bruce Wayne meets her later in the movie, and she kind of, like, comes comes around to him. At first, yeah. it's kind of fun how frosty she is towards him. Yeah, it, like when she not when he knocks down her door, she's just kind of like this fucking asshole, <laughs> <laughs> fucking goon. Yeah, like the, the, uh, Kim Basinger in '89 was like she was genuinely interested, I think, in in Bruce Wayne. And Batman was more of just she was kind of scared of him because he was like a new thing. He was kind of scary. And this, she's like, I can give a fuck less about Bruce Wayne. She's like, I'm all about the bat. Yeah, no, the, Nicole Kidman, uh, I mean, uh, Kim Basinger has that fun moment, like I said, when she first meets Bruce Wayne and she doesn't know who he is. And yeah. for him, from a character standpoint, that must be refreshing mm-hmm. to be, you know, billionaire playboy and have a, a beautiful woman walk up to you and say, do you know who Bruce, which one of these guys is Bruce Wayne? He's like, uh, I'm not really sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, Nicole Kidman, the way she plays this is uh, she's very frosty initially towards Bruce Wayne. She's dripping wet for Batman. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, her being a psychologist is supposed to, again, touch on that theme of, like, repressed trauma of some sort. Mm. Like, like Batman slash Bruce Wayne is supposed to be kind of leaning on her as, as like, a tool to address, address all the stuff that's bubbling below the surface. And she, uh, their relationship, especially the Bruce Wayne relationship, is is very clinical <laughs> mm-hmm. like, like it's not very romantic at all i mean he takes her to the circus but i think he like asks her out on a second date and she's like i don't know i got someone else yeah. <laughs> and he wears a lot of leather i'm kind of into that i didn't know i was but i am <laughs> and then there's that scene where he he comes in full batman suit to her window and we get like was this the same set as uh saying almost fire where uh Demi Moore was yeah. <laughs> with uh, the curtains. It's very possible. Goddamn, Joel Schumacher and his curtains. curtains. <laughs> I yeah, don't. He comes into the curtains. I don't remember the Phantom of the Opera with Gerard Butler, but I'm sure there's there's got. I mean, if there was a movie that had the uh, the drapes blowing in the wind, that's the fucking movie. <laughs> but yeah, he comes to visit her in the night. Um, she doesn't you know throw things at him and scream rape or whatever she's perfectly okay with a, a man in a cape coming in through her window well, she's into um, it unannounced um but then she uh, turns him away because at that point in the story she's kind of coming around to bruce because he's a smile too yeah and he's like mm, she, nice. likes <laughs> she, like, she likes she likes me, me, me without <laughs> she likes me for me <laughs> <laughs> i'm batman <laughs> i'm bruce wayne but um yeah, uh, one of the last scenes they have together is Bruce and her is a uh, they're having like dinner together, and then uh, all the goons show up. Oh yeah, I, 
and he gets shot in the head, and uh, she gets kidnapped because damsel in distress. Um, even Nicole Kidman couldn't escape that. <laughs> yeah, the goons actually. I think that's a good that's a good pivot, real quick. I don't know if we really discussed the goons so far, but this is where the goons play a, a more significant role. They they kicked it up in uh, in Batman Returns. Like there was some, there was definitely more like the circus clown, like the the, the circus group basically. This they're all the same. They are kind of scary beefcakes with two face uh, sock hats on and tons of piercings. Yeah, um, every single one of this era of the Batman films had goons, which is even in the Burton films is mm. like a nod to both the comics and the the, the television show. At you the gotta time. have goons. Yeah, and they're all uniformed goons. Mm-hmm. Like they're all themed goons, which is I love that. <laughs> it's it's silly, but I love it. Where you know the Joker, again, like one of the coolest things about Jack Nicholson's interpretation of that character is that that particular Joker is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Like when we get into the Nolan version, he's an anarchist. Por- he's portrayed as an anarchist, where he's trying to throw everything into chaos because he's more comfortable there, and he wants everyone else to kind of abide by his vision to the world which is, is not a happy one <laughs> is he still alive because i think he's doing it now <laughs> seriously he is working but... overtime he and bane are working overtime right now because they are fucking everything up <laughs> um but jack nicholson's version is a narcissist in that he one of his initial beefs with batman is that joker did some bad shit and batman's getting all the news headlines mm-hmm. he's like what kind of a world do we live in for a man dressed as a bat <laughs> gets all my air this town needs an enema this town needs an enema <laughs> i love that but um so he wants to put his face up on everything he wants to be the center of attention everywhere he goes which includes putting his fucking emblem on all of his goons and having them dress in his color palette mm-hmm. so his marketing and branding are very important to his joker <laughs> um but yeah, Batman Returns, we have the Red Triangle Circus Gang, so they they don't have uniforms, but they're all fucking circus. They're, you know, they all have circus performer outfits and whatnot. Um, and then, yeah, Batman Forever, like you said, we have the, the beefcakes with the, they look like Tommy guns with, it looks like, a like a swirl. Heat, yeah. yeah, it's like a heating coil from a, like an electric oven Yeah, <laughs> in the magazine of the gun. Um I don't think Riddler has his own goons, so I guess he borrowed all of Two-Face's goons. Yeah, Two-Face provides the goons for him. He's the muscle. Yeah. He's totally the muscle, because Riddler doesn't do shit. Mm -mm. In fact, there's that one scene where he's trying to teach him how to punch out a security guard while they're doing, like, the jewel heist, and um, does he, like, hurt his hand on the guy's face when he tries to punch him? So, yeah, he's a complete feeb. Like, he can move well, but he can't hurt nobody. I love that Tommy Lee Jones just balled the fist lean back and assert yourself <laughs> he like knocks the dude out and he's kind of got like a smile and just rolls in with it it's really funny well, see it's funny except for when jim carrey is doing his bit when he's winding up to do his punch and stuff you can actually see tommy lee jones and i think it's even on the soundtrack like repeating himself mm-hmm. and you can tell he's just like waiting for his cue he's like this fucking guy yeah. <laughs> like i don't know if they had any problems on that set but i wouldn't be surprised at all yeah, tommy lee jones i think is like a no nonsense kind of actor where it's like i don't like we're, i'm get kind of like michael michael richards and uh if you watch like outtakes from seinfeld it gets uncomfortable uh because um 
Julie Louis Dreyfus would kind of miss her lines occasionally, and they would get like legit frustrated. Like, would you or would you stop fucking around? Seriously, yeah. really, he's a serious actor. I think um, Tommy Lee Jones is probably one of those where it's just like not as severe, but he's just like, hey, what did you did you learn your lines? Can you can you get them, please? Can you just get this right? Well, that's why I say like I actually don't know much about like relationships on the set, but Val Kilmer's notoriously difficult. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> notoriously difficult and actually there were rumors none of which have been confirmed um but there were rumors that he and jim carrey had problems i can see that uh, um he straight up denies them val kilmer does um on the making of disc but i wouldn't be surprised if that's a lie <laughs> i could see just after a while if you just have a few too many drinks one night and you have to come into work the next day and you've got jim carrey and he's on and he's on all the time. It's just like, could you just just stop? Well, please? and and there's that that Andy Kaufman movie, The Man on the Moon. Fuck him. The making yeah. of that, like Jim Carrey, like that movie, kind of shed new light on his his personality, I guess. Yeah, I I don't know what his history was up to that point. They kind of implied that that was something new because this was like a, an actual dramatic role he was taking on. And he had never act like they they kind of implied that he never really act like that on set before. So that's why they didn't want that to come out and then like that he was actually a dick because they were surprised at how difficult he was to work with on there also he was like one of the richest men in america at that point yeah now he just wants to paint (laughs) (laughs) i don't know he made sonic the hedgehog watchable (laughs) yeah i'll I'll watch that eventually it's i mean if you don't it's fine but he's the he's the only good part of that movie (laughs) gotcha um, I was gonna say the goons. I like the goons in this one. I don't like the goons in the next movie. Uh, I think the best goon. I, I think the the circus and Batman Returns. I think I think those are probably the best goons because they're creepy, and they all have their own talents as well. I mean, I'm gonna contradict myself slightly, but um, I do like how organic they feel as goons. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's very few of them that feel expendable. Like you said, That's most true, of them yeah. most of them have a specific like a team, skill yeah. set. As, re- as represented by their outfit. Like, the sword swallower, obviously he's got a fucking sword. The the fire breather, obviously he's got fire breather. Um, and then the clowns with, you know, the various weapons and stuff. And the, there's even a knife thrower lady wearing a Native American headdress and stuff. So they, they, all, they all fit into that video game very well. <laughs> Maybe uh, before we get into, like, music, set design, and then the overall themes of the film... Uh, the the background the like the background characters did you know that I mean there's something that happens in the second one as well we kind of revisit it but the blacklight gang is what is what I want to call them uh, they're about to rape this girl uh, just in the middle of the street I'm like holy shit but the guy that's like who the hell are you do you know who that dude is Don the Dragon Wilson there we go I knew you would know that I'm like he's like a a champion kickboxer like has he ever thrown a round kick on screen yes (laughs) (laughs) of course I know who that is (laughs) after like I I was looking up I'm like I wonder if this is that there's this actor he was in Dr. Doolittle and he was in an episode of the X-Files uh and I was wondering if it was him and it's not him and I was looking it up I'm like oh he's a kickboxer I'm like Trevor's gonna know that and then as he gets into his fight with Robin I love his acting because uh, Robin, yeah, I was like, oh, oh, and I just know like in real life he would have knocked the shit out of him, but he had to act like, I wonder how difficult it was for him not to just kick him right back or like block the kick. 
<laughs> very i'm yeah. sure because he drops like a sack of potatoes yeah <laughs> oh man <laughs> yeah um i was calling these people the splatterpunks because they reminded me of the the hooligans from robocop 3 which is it's just a punk rock street gang yeah. from the 90s slash the 80s there were a lot of those back in the day did you catch one of the the, the background person the, the the little laugh the <laughs> it's like a I, I did not. Who was that? I don't know. It's just it's just a <laughs> laugh that's uh like they're laughing at him, uh, at, la- laughing at Robin. Somebody just lets out this like cartoonish laugh. I'm like, that was like, really good. I mean, it makes me think of the Karate Kid, the get him a body bag. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's it's along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we could probably just touch on the music real quick. Uh, sure. As you mentioned, and I definitely noticed it more this time. I'm like, yeah, I remember this music. I know it in my bones. I know, I know this uh, this score. But you're right. Uh, it's a like I said, it's abrasive, and it it does kind of weigh on you after a little while because it it's manic at sometimes. Like especially when Two Face is on screen, it gets really like. Bah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it, it's like a Darren Aronofsky film. <laughs> like, like, Jesus. Yeah, it gets under your skin. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I actually uh, took it upon myself to listen to a lot of Batman music while I was at work this past week. Um, I made a, a playlist called The Batmans, <laughs> just covering all the films, uh, a few tracks from each movie. And, uh, yeah, it is abrasive. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it puts you on edge. Uh, the score for both of Joel Schumacher's Batman films was done by Elliot Goldenthal, um, who I know best as the composer of Alien 3. Mm. Um, and I believe he also did Demolition Man. Um, he he loves his, his scary brass. Um, it has like a James Horner vibe to it. So Aliens and Alien 3 both have that, except for Aliens has the advantage of being uh, a a more action-oriented film mm-hmm. and be um, a military action film. So things like uh, march cadences and, you know, thing, things with momentum and, and action to them uh, are appropriate for the style of composition. But by the time you get to Alien 3, it's a different beast altogether. And, uh, yeah, his uh, instrumentation is its interesting. Um, he was a good choice for Alien 3 in that... Uh, we all know that David Fincher loves him some Nine Inch Nails slash Trent mm-hmm. Reznor, and it fits that vibe really well um, because he makes a lot of use of just like metallic, like thumping noises and things that like found instruments, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't, I don't feel it translates very well to a Batman score because his like triumphant, like overarching, like Batman theme. The one that we all know, the you know, you know what I'm. Yeah, like the Batman theme is very well composed. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no complaints about that. It's all the in between stuff. Yes. It's like, like anytime an action scene happens in either of these films, it's like it's, insidious. It's like yes, yeah. Well, what they're doing, your brain. what what he's doing is he's doing like a jazzy thing where it sound it's supposed to sound like the Adam West television show. Mm. And in fact, you can hear the Batman. <laughs> like you can hear the punch noises like the you can hear that on the soundtrack, but like it's it's just like manic and chaotic. Chase Meridian gets like lethal weapon uh lethal weapon saxophone whenever she's 
Yeah, and and the Riddler gets some some fun like goofy bits as well, but more more than that, what I recall from the score for this one is mostly just chaos and really audacious brass and it it unfortunately like some of the the bigger cues like um they actually recycle it for batman and robin um Mm. when he makes his dramatic dive to save both the riddler and and robin i mean uh chase Chase meridian and and robin that cue is so similar to ripley taking her nose dive in uh alien 3 in the lead works it's so similar to like when the sprinklers turn on you can hear like if you picture it, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So it's it's an odd score. I think I prefer Batman and Robin to be honest. Uh, the score. Anyway. It's, yeah, it's not as it's not as abrasive. Yeah. It it's more varied and yeah, it's less abrasive. But um, unfortunately, like Danny Elfman, Batman Returns, like putting those two side by side, it's like. Fuck. It's yeah, it's entirely different. Yeah, it's night and day. The CG. I watched this on Blu-ray. I've got all four of the the first four on Blu-ray, like a little combination pack. And the the CGI, like the uh, the the statues in the background and stuff, and like the Gotham that they build. Watching it on Blu-ray, whew, man, <laughs> it's supposed to be seen on VHS. Well, um, the worst thing they do is uh, when we see Wayne Core or Wayne Enterprises, mm-hmm. um, where where edward dingma works um when we see the exterior of that i believe it's a cgi prop as opposed to a miniature or at least it's a combination of the two the worst thing they did was show that in the daytime mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> like it, it's like twilight when we pull up to that and it's like ooh, yeah i don't think you want that kind of light on that like, <laughs> on that cgi prop it's like the fifth element but basically i'm like man that looks, that looks bad but uh it's yeah sti- it still had like it, it kind of was like oh that's nice it's 90s yeah, that- miss that yeah and it needs to be said this is one of the earlier instances of a cgi stunt double used in a movie like we had a lot of things done in cgi um up to this point in cinema history but it was pretty rare to have like a full-on just person like Mm. square in the center of the frame big as life and twice as ugly because there's a couple of scenes where like batman dives from the rooftops and i think uh when he falls into like two faces trap um, that Robin has to save him from. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure that was all done uh, with a miniature backdrop and a CGI Batman. I'm not as crazy about this set design as I am. <clears throat> I really like the Batman and Robin set design throughout the film. Uh, I just wanted to just point out like one set in particular that I really liked. I really like the Batcave in the in these movies in the the Schumacher Batman, and we spend more time in it uh, here because a lot of our Batman and like Batman and Dick Grayson conversations happen in the cave and there's there's quite a bit of quite a bit of space uh, i don't know i just i really like the the lighting in here i like how it's uh, it seems like it's more functional whereas the keaton batman i don't know i just it didn't seem like it was a very u- very good use of space uh, it just seemed very very isolated yeah actually i'll agree with you and uh i'm glad you brought that up because that the bat cave is something worth talking about across all these films um yeah the burton version of it is very minimal um you can tell it was maybe a bit of an afterthought it's more just like represented by uh, a locker wherein he stores his bat suits mm-hmm. um a couple of desks and a bunch of antiquated monitors um other than that our spatial awareness of like of where things are oriented in relation to each other in the bat cave is minimal at best like you really don't get a sense of it i did like that in batman returns we get the the bat shoot mm-hmm. where, uh, where uh 
yes. um, he he uh, activates the the thing in the water tank to you know go through the Iron Maiden and down the slide. That's a you know that's a thing that Batman would have, and actually that's what's kind of funny about this one, where the way Robin gets into the Batcave is actually kind of funny. Dumb. I, I think it's funny. It's sloppy. It's like no. so you, yeah. You mean he he just like parkoured his way into the bookcase? Okay, sure. Uh, I always like that because I'm like he's way the fuck up there, and yeah, he parkours his way down. Um, I like. Uh, Bruce Wayne's office slide. I'm like, this thing is fucking awesome. I'm like, yeah, if I was a billionaire, I'm like, yeah, I want that. I want a fucking slide that takes me from one house to the other. Spend all my money on that. That looks awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, the the Nolan Batman, the Batcave, it feels too real. I don't know. It just doesn't... It, I can't really... It, can't really romanticize it. It just seems too functional. It's just like, yeah, it's kind of moist in here, and I've got a computer. I'm like, it seems it seems careless, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's it's a Christopher Nolan style. He tends to veer towards the slightly more pragmatic or practical. But yeah, we'll we'll get to that when we get to yeah. it, though. Should we discuss the the um, themes of the film? I think we've sure. we've circled around it long enough. Sure, you want to get us get us started with that, Kyle? So this is, I think that this is actually expertly done um, from a from a writing standpoint and how you are telling the story. So the story is, without the deleted scenes being added in here, that Val Kilmer is like he's suffering with, or Batman or Bruce Wayne is suffering from the guilt of his parents dying. Still, like he's still carrying that burden, and he also just is trying to talk to somebody about the fact that he is Batman and like he's just trying to get this out and he's trying to confide in this psychiatrist and he's about to and then he also has uh like you said Robin who he wants to tell as well and he's having difficulty trying to communicate that to them and as a kid you're just like yeah I get it I just want to see the I just want to see the action stuff I don't really notice this and even as an adult until somebody tells you I'm like this is a, this is totally gay themes, and I never I never noticed it, but like as I mentioned, like once it's pointed out to you, it's so clear and obvious. Uh, and if you didn't know, Joel Schumacher is a gay. He is gay. Yeah, no, as a film director, it's something that comes up in a lot of his products. Yeah. I don't think that's us reaching. It's it's no. it's sprinkled across his filmography. Like The Lost Boys certainly has quite a bit to do with flawless. That. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious there. I don't know about the uh, the um, Phantom of the Opera. I think that was just uh, just something he wanted to do. But it's definitely it definitely comes up in Saint Elmo's Fire. Oh, absolutely. No, it, it's there. You know, it, it's it's not something you have to reach too far to find. And and yeah, um, a lot of just the nature of the duality going on with with the Bruce Wayne character, um, where he has he has this burden, he has this this secret that he's not come to grips with, and he's kind of like looking for support and looking for a way to tap into that and maybe come into his own um and he's you know seeking help he's he has a surrogate family in the form of alfred um and now he has robin who's a young man also looking to kind of like find his way in the world um but yeah it's it's interesting that it's there but it it's not intrusive thankfully like yeah it, it's still a batman movie but it's just subtext it's it certainly can be interpreted a certain way yeah and i i don't i can't think of another movie that kind of 
I mean, just probably just because I haven't seen it, but I can't think of another movie that has that so clear and present where it can be two completely different interpretations, and either one is just is totally fine. Uh, Nightbreed is pretty mm. explicit um, in what they're getting at uh, without using the word, um, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels, a lot of allusions uh, to growing up as a, a gay young man in in that story. And this was probably. Um, uh, somebody that we used to used to work with would say when they saw Call Me By Your Name, they were like, yeah, this was it was a nice movie because as a gay person, it's nice to see a movie that's not about AIDS or like, uh, like it was actually nice to see a, a movie, about, an actual like love story about a gay couple. And he's like, it, it just doesn't always happen. And I'm thinking, I'm like, do you think that this would be received as well? It's like, yeah, this is actually like, I like the themes here and people could probably relate to it. And it's not like... It's not about people dying, and it's not—it's not a negative. It's not, no negative themes. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think the Batman in this movie is supposed to be gay. No, I, I think we're just—we're just kind of like alluding to that mm-hmm. um, in the script. But I think one of the the more interesting things that kind of gets glossed over in the you know amid all the noise and chaos of Jim Carrey in this movie is that um, prior to the really flimsy climax of this movie um, because this is not a very good action movie no um like the fisticuffs i think you pointed out in our previous episode are actually like executed slightly better than the tim burton films mm-hmm. um but that could just be down to having better stunt people or maybe a suit that allows you to move different slightly better too. yeah also different era this is 1995 folks this is the era of the roundhouse kick mm-hmm. um everyone everyone had to get kicked in the face you ever heard um, of jackie chan because you will <laughs> it's not even that it's like it's it's like chuck norris movies yeah. and uh power rangers came out i think in 95 yeah, there, there was going to be a new wave of martial arts films coming to the U.S. Like seventies, well, yeah. Van Damme was very much rolling at this point, and mm-hmm. his trademark move is a leaping kick yeah. to the face. <laughs> he makes you smell his toes. Uh, it's what it's what you sign on for if you're in a Van Damme movie. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, from amid all that, so amid all the like the flimsy action stuff, uh, we have this revelation moment where uh, the Riddler is using his box to become a super duper genius. Never comes into play whatsoever. He's never shown to be more intelligent than anyone really. Um, he doesn't do much in this movie other than like kind of prance and prane about in the movie and make a spectacle of himself. But um, he sets up Batman in such a situation where he has to choose who's going to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin or chase and uh batman has this very small speech um and uh he saves the day but when he's defeated the riddler he he reminds the riddler it's like you know i beat you because uh i'm no longer in conflict with myself i'm both bruce wayne and batman Mm -hmm. i i i have come to terms with who i am i've made peace with myself and that's kind of a a revelatory moment for the development of the character Mm because bruce wayne is very seldom allowed to be okay with things um, yes. in in most representations. Um, so I thought that was interesting. It's a much more optimistic outlook on the character mm-hmm. um, that's foreign to almost every other interpretation of the character. And then I think even at the end, like he's he's got this this woman who is so horny she would probably let him finger her behind a dumpster uh (laughs) that's the level she's at and at the end he kind of i i kind of got the gist it's like yeah i think i'm gonna i'm gonna stay batman and i'm gonna stay with robin 
and that was kind of like because he's wrestling with like kind of wrestling with being with her like when she does the bat signal and she's just kind of like she's coming on to him and he's just like yeah i'm not really feeling that and then at the end he's like i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with robin i think that's what's gonna happen well yeah i mean the deleted scenes have a, a moment where alfred is driving her home and she was like does does it go on forever aka batman forever and he's like yeah pretty much <laughs> so, you should probably um, go home <laughs> and also the you know the deleted scenes like i said the clumsy resolution to his his arc um again this isn't in the actual film but in the deleted scenes um he goes into the he literally does the empire strikes back with the 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 cave that luke wasn't supposed to go into mm-hmm. you know face face your greatest fear or whatever he literally does that yeah. Um, and it's very dreamlike and whatnot. And when he emerges from that, unlike Luke, who comes out confused and terrified, uh, he comes out like enlightened and empowered. And like I said, when Alfred asks, like, are you OK, Master Bruce? Because this is when he's coming out of his amnesia and stuff. He says, I'm Batman. I'm Batman. So like it, like you said, he's embracing Batman. Yeah. Pro- probably more so than Bruce Wayne. So so. I don't think a long-term relationship is in the cards, Dr. Meridian. <laughs> um, I didn't really have much else to say about the theme. I just felt we kind of had to... We, we needed to mention it. I wasn't sure if there's anything anything else you wanted to say. No, I, I mean, I think it's appropriate that... I, I was kind of bashing on Two-Face as a choice for a villain, but when, when you talk about it in like really broad thematic strokes... Two-Face, duality. Yeah. It, it, it makes sense. Yeah. It's just from a character standpoint, they didn't do shit with him yeah. other than, you know, show that he has two faces. He has two faces. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to, before, like, my overall assessment of the film, was there anything else you wanted to say? There was there was one thing I wanted to touch on um, before I get to the assessment was that Batman doesn't get a cool entrance anymore, and I think Batman Forever has the coolest entrance i mean it was a i think it was a trailer shot and it's even mentioned in the film uh his entrance into by the way i'm gonna probably talk about this uh on this next one when we talk about batman and robin but uh he bursts through the ceiling at enigma's uh party and it's really cool like it's a really cool entrance and he even tells two faces like your entrance was good his was better that interests exactly how the Joker comes in in The Dark Knight. He just kind of pops up in an elevator. And I was just like, Batman doesn't get cool entrances anymore. He just well, kind of sneaks means, in. Well, he's supposed to be stealthy in the Nolan movies, you know? know. And and Christopher Nolan seems totally averse to that particular brand of spectacle. Like, spectacle for spectacle's sake. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it has to have a reason to happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've kind of trended away from that in recent days. But... I'm so glad you brought that up because I I just remembered something I wanted to talk about was um, the way Batman movies begin um, are opening shots because the Tim Burton film, we didn't talk about this before, but uh, the Batman 89 begins with a very, very strange uh, miniature shot of us, of the camera maneuvering through a concrete what's it Mm -hmm. and credits and that wonderful, wonderful theme music. That's all you need. Like you can put anything behind that theme music and it'll fucking work. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have a guy working a can opener, <laughs> but and it would work. But yeah, we get the bat symbol and the credits, and that's our intro. It's it's like a really abstract way to begin a superhero movie. And then Batman Returns, we get this amazing uh, shot of like the miniature uh, mansion of Cobblepot Manor or whatever, mm-hmm. and then we get the whole introduction of the Penguin and this fabulous uh, opening credit sequence of the baby of the stroller or whatever 
going down the sewers and again that theme music mm-hmm. um but then we get to this one and we get cgi titles mm-hmm. uh, swooping at us like the like the uh, yeah. like the 1970s superman movie like it's like, like everything is whooshing by and it's all co- all the titles are color coded so you know who it represents yeah. <laughs> like robin is red and two face is purple and the riddler's green i'm gonna put it on record i love it when they mess with the warner brothers logo i like it when it changes <laughs> i didn't catch that on this one did they put like the question mark symbol over it or something i can't remember the i i actually was like i started it on the blu-ray i'm like oh, i'm just gonna go to the bathroom real quick and uh i'll push play when i get in there but these blu-rays don't have a menu so it just starts playing immediately so i'm oh shit i missed it so i didn't see it for this one they definitely have it in batman and robin okay well in in this one the very first thing that happens i think we get a cold open i think that that's what i was gonna say i like that about batman movies almost every single one i can't remember the beginning of batman begins but we get an awesome cold open like we're straight into batmaning or something uh coming with the plot the nolan movies do the villain stuff well the the nolan movies uh batman begins doesn't quite begin that way Mm -hmm. but we'll we'll get to the nolan movies because the first shot of every nolan movie is it's consistent between all three movies and we'll get to that next week though but um but yeah batman forever open it's a cold open we mm-hmm. get the titles uh with the like the headlining stars and then uh like credits over uh two-face doing a bank heist mm-hmm. um so we get thrown right into the action unlike the other two movies which have very i don't know batman returns is story driven the first one is just like you're getting nothing but credits <laughs> like you're gonna watch these fucking credits and this one's just like in a hurry to get fucking rolling Executive and like i said producer this, do you see <laughs> in this one like the uh the intended opening sequence like i said was supposed to be two-faced breaking out of arkham mm-hmm. um so in this one though we get a, like a james bond opener almost <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's about all I had to say, I think, about Batman Forever. Uh, did you have like a final assessment or thoughts on this one? No, I think that this is still, as a child, this was still my favorite one. And for nostalgia purposes, this is one I like to go back and revisit. I, I definitely, as an adult, I'm like it's it's tougher to get through. Not as tough as Batman and Robin, don't get me wrong. Batman and Robin, I, I couldn't even get through last night because I'm just like, I, I, can't, I can't do it anymore. And... Honestly, I'm sorry. I like her, but Uma Thurman is the reason why I could barely get through that that movie. Um, but yeah, as an adult, unless you really liked it as a kid, I mean, there's not really much to, to see except for, oh, I remember watching this with Cherry Pepsi and, uh, and popcorn. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm on the same page as you. Where I think I can watch almost any Batman movie just on the background. Mm-hmm. Easily. Like it's it's inoffensive, it's cozy, like you said, '90s nostalgia for for us of a certain age. Um, but this is one that's like, other than that, I don't derive a whole lot of enjoyment out of it. Um, mm-hmm. Some of Jim Carrey's like physical stuff is actually, it's always going to be fun to watch. Um, but in terms of like story and like soundtrack and stuff, <laughs> like, it doesn't have a whole lot to offer. It's not a fantastic action movie. Uh, the production design is the real star of the show for the most part. Um, and even that you kind of have to be in a little bit of a mood for because it's very gaudy and very stagey. Mm-hmm. Like this is hyper real kind of shit where we're, we have the cinematic lighting kits like on full display in the frame. Like, mm-hmm. like we're not even pretending that this is a movie. Like this isn't a movie. Like, no, you are watching a goddamn show. 
Um, and whether you enjoy it or not, that's up to you. But yeah, this is one that I wouldn't like go out of my way to put on. Um, but if I'm doing a Batman marathon, I'm not going to omit it. No. <laughs> so yeah, that's where I'm at with it, I guess. Yeah. So I guess we should uh, switch gears over to Batman and Robin, which I think will be, I think I have a lot less to say about this one. I think we had more to say because I think it's the first of the Schumacher films and it's the better of the Schumacher Batman um, Batman and Robin, um, I, I, there are definitely things I like about it, and there are a lot more things I hate about it. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, uh, I think I agree with you. We, we kind of touched on our personal background with these movies, uh, this movie already, um, Batman and Robin. You said you didn't see this one in the theater? No, uh, the, I don't remember seeing this in the theater. I think this was definitely like just VHS, like we just rented it or watched it at somebody's house. Yeah, I I saw this one in the theater. I think long after it it came out. Like I saw it late. Like it was probably on its way out of the theaters. And it was just one of those things where it's just the right weekend where I had nothing going on. And I'm pretty sure I went to see it with my brother. Um, made very little impression on me. Uh, the freeze gun was kind of cool. They mm-hmm. were really banking on that resonating with the kids because 1997 CGI was all the rage. Um, Arnold's name certainly mm-hmm. carried some weight, but not uh, in this case as much as as you know other roles would have. He's top build. He's the very first name that comes through. He was also paid, I think, like twenty five million for this movie. He was paid twenty five million dollars, and apparently he did very little of his own acting. <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> so make of that what you will. Uh, this movie and what Terminator Three, I guess, financed his a. Uh, gubernatorial campaigns or campaign rather you can just look at the poster he's like front and center of a batman movie yeah he's the only face of the five that is center frame Mm -hmm. and big as life um i don't know if his head is that big compared to the others in real life but (laughs) it's it's smart because he is the best part of the movie like he's he's we were mentioning before we started talking like yeah he's the best part yeah, no, I, I actually find his performance to be kind of enjoyable. I mean, 90s, 90s are like, there's there's a cutoff of where his movies were entertaining. I don't know exactly where it is off the top of my head. It was around like 97, so like Eraser and this. <laughs> there's, there's a cutoff and like past the, once you get to 2000, it's just all garbage. Yeah, like when just, you get to end of days, there's a problem. Yeah. So it was like 99. Or yeah. 2000 so that's that's basically the cost so this is still like arnold prime we're we're still feeling it um yeah the the plot of this one i'll go ahead and read uh because let's see here let's see batman and robin this is from just i think this is just the wikipedia one. Ooh man uh, it still made money at the box office uh still did it still did fine um batman forever uh made all of the money yes it made a ton <laughs> of money uh this has got wow 3.7 out of 10 on imdb 11 percent rotten tomatoes man <laughs> batman and robin tried to prevent the evil pair of mr freeze and poison ivy from freezing the town while doing so they also try to continue their partnership because she's throwing a wedge in between it also there's bane they forgot to mention bane uh it was 1997 only comic book nerds gave two shits about bane um oh. tom hardy changed that but uh in 1997 Nobody cared about Bane. I can't wait um, to talk I did. About, I, I, I was hyped for Bane. but <laughs> I can't. That cold open of uh, The Dark Knight Rises has got to be one of my favorite uh, One of my favorite scenes from a Batman movie. The plane, the plane stuff. 
Oof. The plain stuff. The plain stuff. <laughs> Again, uh, of course, this is also Joel Schumacher, so we don't really need to talk about his quirks. Um, we did kind of gloss over something in Batman Forever, which is the amount of statues of shirtless, ripped dudes is through the roof. There's some CGI ones, but mostly they are real life. This movie kind of moves away from that. We, we get a few statues um, in this one, but mostly the... The beefcakes are uh, are real people in this. There's a would you call it a, a squad of beefcakes or? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a menagerie of beefcakes. There's cake. a menagerie of beefcakes in this one. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, that's a that's a fairly straightforward and accurate plot summary. Um, because this movie is fairly straightforward. Yeah. Um, there's there's not a whole lot to it. But um, you want to get started with our thoughts on George Clooney as? Mr. Batman. He's the worst one. Um, I think you mentioned that he does have some really, some really, a really nice moment with uh, Alfred. I think it's when he's in the bed. Like, you're absolutely right. I remember even as a kid, I'm like, oh wow, that's that's really good. He has good Bruce Wayne moments with Alfred. He's awful as Batman. He's actually kind of at one point he's kind of cross-eyed uh, when he's in his bat suit. I'm like, well, that's actually accurate. Bats are pretty cross-eyed. Well, I mean, you know what makes that doubly bad? Hmm. That's the first fucking scene yeah, he's in. Basically, it's like it's, it's not his first scene, but it's the first time he does anything vaguely Batman-like. Mm-hmm. So both of Joel Schumacher's movies actually very. Um, I'm not sure if it's clever, but um, boldly uh, make the first bits of dialogue in them uh, corny. Mm-hmm. So in the first in Batman Forever, we get. Uh, some, some Alfred says something to Val Kilmer before he's pulling out of the Batcave, and he's like, "I'll get drive through," <laughs> and then he drives up. Yeah. And that's in this one, it's the that's why Superman dig, works alone. Yeah, yeah, chicks dig the car. I want a car. He's like, this is why Superman works alone. And it's like so right off the bat, Joel Schumacher is telling the audience, like, "Buckle in, folks. It's going to be that kind of movie." This is definitely the campiest Batman. Uh, as far as the villains are concerned, but this is the least campy of the Batman. Like, he's not even close to campy. Um, George Clooney is not a high-energy performer, and when he is, it's funny. Like, I, I remember him, if he's in a if he's in a Coen Brothers film, he's funny, because they have him, like, a little more high energy. And uh, even The Men Who Stare at Goats, which I recently rewatched, which is great, um, his moments of high energy are fucking hilarious. So... In a Batman movie where he needs to move or be high energy, it's just not. It doesn't translate. He just he doesn't he doesn't do it. Yeah, he he. I don't think he showed up for this one. Mm-mm. I think he I think like this could be me reaching, but I feel like he was embarrassed. I feel like he like if you look at him particularly in his Batman scenes, it, he looks uncomfortable and he doesn't look sure of himself. He looks like he's not happy. <laughs> he's fine with Bruce Wayne. Like he 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 feels fine in that role. But still, also, I think... also, you need to remember where he was at in his career, uh, he was... because he was Kyle. He was still on ER. I was gonna say, was this? I thought it was post ER, but this is like ER. I think he's still on ER at this point. No, like, kind of, like, kind of like Spielberg hopping back and forth between Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. <laughs> George George Clooney, like, not as great of an accomplishment, but George Clooney was still filming ER. He was working seven days a week filming Batman and Robin. So he was filming ER and then going to the set of Batman and Robin back and forth, back and forth. Um, so he was probably tired. Yeah. Um, he was being a doctor on a serious drama uh, day in and day out. So he wasn't known as a funny, high-energy guy at that point. Um, if we had, like, 
George Clooney from 10 years ago in this movie, yeah, he probably would have bought into the the high camp of the of the production design of the film and mm-hmm. just been like, fuck it, I'm going to be crazy, Batman. I'm going to be doing the Batusi, goddammit. <laughs> like, we had, speaking of which, where is the Batusi in this movie? <laughs> like, Adam West, his, uh, his dance he would do on the show? Oh. It's like, it's the Pulp Fiction dance with the fingers over the eyes and mm. stuff. It's a little outdated. I don't think that really uh, translates to this decade. <laughs> I mean, the production design speaks otherwise. <laughs> I think it would have fit in perfectly, especially since we have a scene at a dance hall. Like, why the fuck not? Um, I guess the villains, this is the only film adaptation we've had of Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes. Uh both characters were featured in the animated series, mm-hmm. um, but in live action, no. Um, uh, Poison Ivy, she's not in Birds of Prey, is she? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, I haven't seen it, folks. Uh, mm. Kyle has, but he has told me, uh, he has warned me, essentially. That it, he really did not like that movie. I really went in expecting to like it. I thought it was going to be fun. Word of mouth, it's going to be a fun movie. Really disappointed. But yeah, Poison Ivy is uh, not a character I'm familiar with other than this movie. Um, I guess she's kind of a environmentalist. It makes sense that she would be an environmentalist. Um, I like Uma Thurman before she becomes Poison Ivy. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Uma Thurman is a stone-cold fox, uh, and she's looking she's looked really hot in this movie. Um, but she is like crazy annoying to me for some reason. <laughs> i'm curious as to as to why that is because i, I feel like her cadence her cadence bothers me i uh, it's very slow and it's supposed to be hi batman batman it she's she's taking it for a fucking walk is what she's doing um she's trying to be seductive too much like you don't have to be trying to seduce everything all the time at every moment See, what I think is, uh, I think she knew what movie she was in. Like, in stark contrast to George Clooney, who seems uneasy with the material, he's actually very deadpan in this movie. He actually does have a couple of funny bits. Like, I like when uh, he and Robin are in Mr. Freeze's lair, and they're... They're doing the the bro chat where it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, we're we're not going to fight over the girl anymore, right? Yeah, we're we're done with that. Yeah. Nice stems, though. <laughs> like, as in gams or legs or whatever. Yeah. But like his timing and his flat delivery, it it works. So his Batman is very deadpan, um, whereas she is embracing like the high camp aspect of of the presentation of the film, and she is just taking it to eleven. Mm-hmm. Whereas she's like, <laughs> these go to eleven. <laughs> <laughs> no, like seriously though, she, I get what she's doing. Um, she's having a lot of fun with it, um, but it does come across as like really transparently like loud and audacious and and kind of laborious in a way because like you said her her delivery is very stretched and mm-hmm. she's really like everything is big, yes. Bane darling. <laughs> like it's like it, it's she's doing like an Eartha Kit thing with it, but mm-hmm. like even even turned up louder than that. <laughs> so it it kind of like grinds things to a halt a little bit kind of makes it her show for a few minutes at a time here and there um i don't have as much of a problem with it just because honestly it's hard for me to have too much of a problem with anything in this movie because it's like you know 
it knows what it is. And yeah. Th- and thankfully, she's one of the parts that like buys into that. I guess. I think George Clooney's the only one that doesn't get it. Yeah. He's Chris just... O'Donnell doesn't have anything to do. He really doesn't, because the only reason why he's... You tell his story of Batman Forever, this is like, yeah, he's just there. He's literally just there. Kind of like yeah. Elle McPherson. She's just kind of there. No, he and Alicia Silverstone, who we'll get to, they're both competing for screen time, but even the screen time that's allotted to them, it's like, it's totally empty. It's just like, okay. Like, I guess they need a scene or two. I mean, you didn't really need to bring in Batgirl into this i like you could i think if you would have left her thread out and maybe created more tension between um batman and robin i think that or dick grayson and bruce wayne i think that would have been a little bit better yeah it probably would have but uh this movie the production history of it is really fascinating actually but we'll we'll get to that when we're when we get to that with the the wrap-up i guess um but yeah, Poison Ivy, uh, she again was in the animated series, had several episodes dedicated to her. Like you said, she's an environmentalist. Um, depending on the writer, uh, she either has like really, really crazy plant powers uh, in that she can like communicate with plants and it seems to be part plant in terms of like biology to some mm-hmm. extent. Uh, she typically has the poison lips. Um, that's a really common characteristic of her. Um, this annoyed the shit out of me when I was a kid because, you know, I was still a kid when this came out and the notion of a, a lady running around trying to kiss everybody mm-hmm. uh, was, was like, that's, you know, for a young boy, that's like, ew. <laughs> but on top of that, uh, aside from all of her vamping, all, all of her, you know, taking the material for a walk and her big performance and whatnot, aside from that, in terms of utility, that's all she's got. Yeah. Like, Poison Ivy has no tools. She has no weapons. So she... Like, that's her only trick. Um, and we weren't ready for lesbianism in Hollywood movies at this point, so there was no poten- no potential whatsoever for her and Batgirl to touch each other at all aside from hitting each other. Are we okay <laughs> with it now? I think we got Black Swan, and that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting there, We're getting there? <laughs> in 2020, we're getting there? But yeah, 1997, gay director or not, Hollywood was not having it. <laughs> Um, so there is no threat of that. In fact, that seems to be why she had to show up. Because uh, unlike Batman Returns, maybe the notion of Batman outright slugging a woman <laughs> was was un- an uncomfortable <laughs> subject for the producers. <laughs> so we need another woman to come in and kick her. Yeah, I get that makes sense. Because uh, <laughs> you don't want a Kano situation where you know he's taking Ooh. a steel toe boot to Sonya. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> man, that, that is, is fucked up. <laughs> Brutal. Brutal. <laughs> um, yeah, Alicia Silverstone is back. I mean, you can pretty much just pluck her right out of the movie, and she's just completely, pretty much inconsequential to the movie. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. I didn't mention this about Batman Forever, but it stretches across both films. But um, ADR is uh, kind of a thing in both of these films. Um, it's kind of all over both of these movies. Um it makes sense because we have a lot of big noisy sets and you know it's it was probably necessary i'm not saying this is a bad thing i'm just mm. saying it's it's present if you look for it and i don't know if she has like marble mouth like andre the giant mouth or something but uh, alicia silverstone a lot of her dialogue sounds adr like it sounds like it's inorganically like slotted in hmm. um but yeah she she's a strange character in this because uh, the history of batgirl as far as i know um 
she was multiple characters in the comics. Like they, I, I want to say she was initially manufactured as like a, uh, a copyright security thing where it's like, we, we better copyright Batgirl because someone else is going to. Mm. Um, and initially I think she was just like some gal. And then later on she'd become Barbara Gordon, who is commissioner Gordon's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I guarantee we're going to be getting her in the movies again sometime soon okay. um, because Barbara Gordon's a very popular character in the comics and even outside of the comics. But um, she's, I think her name is Barbara in this, but I don't think she has any connection to Commissioner Gordon in Batman and Robin. Barbara? I think her she, mom's name is Barbara. I think you're right. But yeah. I, I, I want to say her name is Barbara, but um, in this movie we completely just like, tortured and and strained this character into being somehow related to alfred Mm -hmm. uh, being connected to him like his niece or something or his grandniece maybe um but yeah she arrives from like boarding school and just kind of like inserts herself into the narrative (laughs) it it is barbara wilson yeah she just kind of she just plants herself right in there (laughs) and yeah she doesn't do a whole lot other than uh she gets a couple of girl power moments where we discover that she has her board her boarding school outfit when she shows up um, but then she turns out to be like a motorcycle street racer in the evening. <laughs> I think she also uh, was taught under the tutelage of Steven Seagal because that seems to be the extent of her uh, her martial arts powers because she just gets a the arm flip thing that Seagal does in every movie. Yeah, it's a it's a wrist it's a wrist lock flip. Um, and yeah, she does it to Chris O'Donnell and even completes it with a hiya. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, that's the extent of her fighting ability outside of awkwardly flailing around in a rubber suit later in the movie. We can touch on Bane real quick, but I think we'll probably talk about Mr. Freeze the most, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Bane is, I, I kind of like this idea of, as Bane as just like a fucking moron, <laughs> just a, like not a not a mat, like not a criminal mastermind. I like him as just like a big, dumb beefcake that's kind of being told <laughs> what to do. Um, I... I like Bane in this movie, but I hate what they did to him. Like, like because I, I wish he wasn't named Bane, essentially. Mm. Uh, because this is a grotesque, <laughs> like, like iteration of the characters. It just shits on everything from the comics. Because, like I said, uh, I said this in the first Batman Masterclass, the Tim Burton era. Um, my Pretty much my introduction to Batman comics was Bane's story arc. Uh, the the Nightfall series of comics. And I love the character. I thought he was awesome because the whole point of the fucking guy was that, yes, he looks like a hulking brute, but he's smart. He's incredibly smart. Um, He figures out who Bruce Wayne is. He figures out who Batman is on his own. Mm. Like, there's no revelation. He just spends a year observing Gotham, and he's like, Oh, I think I figured this out. <laughs> it's like, how the fuck did anyone, like, no one else figured that out. But, yeah, this version of the character is totally different. He's he's just there to be a goon for Poison Ivy. Yeah. Um, he, he has the Venom serum, like, the Venom derivative, I think, is what they call it in the comics, which, in his initial appearance uh, in the comics, it was a steroid, comp- like, compound that he would, he had the, the button, and he would activate it, and he'd get, like, superhuman strength and abilities and stuff. Um, in the comics, he had this really awesome story arc where after he's defeated by Batman, um, he goes cold turkey. Mm. Like, he decides that it's a crutch. 
He's like, yes, it makes me stronger and faster, but my reliance on it is making me vulnerable. So he just stopped using it. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. And his head but, shrunk back down to a normal size. <laughs> well, even the way he's rendered, like, yeah, he's a little smaller. But um, I, in this movie, though, he's like, I, John Glover uh, uses uh, Uma Thurman's uh, venom compound and it puts it into a, a, a prison inmate or something. Mm-hmm. It's the guy is, who played, he was in Seven. He was uh, uh, Sloth, the guy in the bed. Oh, really? Yeah, it's that guy. Well, they needed someone tiny, so yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, he he was like I think he's uh, shorter than Doug Jones. I think that's why. No, he he's very short. He's just small. Mm-hmm. He's just a small guy, from what I could tell. But yeah, um, basically he has this series of tubes hooked up to him that you hit a button on his chest, and uh, he turns into a hulking beast that uh can can speak to some extent, but just seems to be compliant um, to whatever Poison Ivy tells him to do. Um, but yeah, he's he's legitimately funny from time to time. I love when he has his uh, his hat and his trench coat. Mm-hmm. That that that's an amazing combination. Like that photo of them at the airport is and him carrying all the luggage. It's great. And uh, when he's laying down the bombs, the bomb, <laughs> bomb. <laughs> I, for some reason, even as a kid, and I was rewatching it last night, that scene where they're in the car and Uma Thurman is putting on the uh, the wig. It was very creepy. I don't know what it is about that. Like, cause she's. She's got like this weird smirk on her face, and her face her she, her face doesn't move at all. So she doesn't even. She looks like she's wearing a mask almost, and then she's putting a wig on top of it. I found it very creepy. Hmm. I didn't notice that. I, I remember being slightly not scared, but alarmed when Bane first transforms into Bane because mm-hmm. you know it's like a it's literally a Frankenstein monster like sequence like complete with mad scientist and uh, like exploding lab equipment i remember loving that whole sequence with john glover like that just that whole thing of him turning into pain and everything also i don't think that man's ever been to medical school (laughs) (laughs) i would agree but but yeah bane is here to be the muscle he doesn't even do that very well and and actually it's really strange like if you think about this from like a structuring standpoint what's really strange to me is that he's poison ivy's like goon Mm-hmm. She she says jump. He just jumps. He doesn't even ask how high. He she doesn't just even she doesn't even like jerk him off to get his like to get <laughs> his like uh his um uh oh what the fuck am I trying like to get his loyalty. She doesn't even just like give him a handy or anything like. No, okay. she she turns into poison ivy via John Glover pushing her into a, a hole of chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, she kills John Glover and then we hear Bane off screen and she says, "Coming, Bane, darling." And yeah. then the next scene we see them and they're just together and he's working for her. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe she, maybe she used her thermal dust. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but who knows? Um, but what what I was saying about the structure though is, um. She's, like, got him, like, in her clutches and whatnot. But by the time we get to the end of the movie, when she faces off with the Bat family, she's alone. Yeah. And well, he's with Mr. Freeze. <laughs> well, he, uh, the, the Bat, uh, Robin and Batgirl end up knocking his thing out. Yeah, I know, but that's what I'm saying. Is Why is he at the observatory? Why is he working for Mr. Freeze instead of hanging out with his mistress or whatever? I don't know. And she's, like I said, aside from, like, a really shitty vine whip and a really shitty knife, oh, yeah, and kissing people, Mm -hmm. she's largely ineffectual. Like, you would think that she'd want her big dude there to 
tangle with whoever shows up. Yeah. Also, by the way, I thought as a kid that this was a guy in a rubber suit uh, playing Bane because of the way he gets juiced up. Like it looks like a balloon basically filling up when you see his face, uh, when you see his uh, him transforming. This dude's fucking real. The guy that's walking around as Bane, Jeep Swenson is his fucking name. <laughs> Jeep? His, it's his nickname is Jeep. His real, I think it's like Robert or something. Let's see here. Yeah, Robert Swenson. Truck uh, Swenson. He was a professional wrestler and stuntman. He is fucking enormous. Like, steroids, obviously, but he's still jacked out of his fucking mind. He is huge. Yeah, steroids and platform boots, like uh, Karloffian uh platform boots uh at one point when they're jumping off he's like i hope mr bane can swim i'm like uh he can't sink like a fucking stone <laughs> <laughs> yeah have you ever thrown a bowling ball into a pool that's how quickly he's gonna go down <laughs> you, you ever throw a jeep in a pool <laughs> he weighs 400 pounds okay. <laughs> he's uh, enormous and it's all muscle too that's the other thing I'm like he's he's definitely gonna sink but uh um, he, he was well cast and i don't know if it's his voice but whoever did the voice had a lot of fun, and he's a fun character. Yeah, he's a I just fan. wish he wasn't named Bane. Um, but Mr. Freeze, um, I love his suit. That is probably one of my favorite things about this movie. And as soon as it started, I'm like, oh, man, I remember that suit. I actually uh, was like, I was looking for toys, like toys that I had at this time, and I had this really cool Mr. Freeze toy, and I fucking found it. It was like four. It's fourteen bucks still in the box, and uh, I'm I'm really excited. It should be here in a few days. I'm like, I oh my god, because I have to show me. Because <laughs> uh, I remember playing. It was like my favorite toy when I was a kid because it had like he had like see through biceps. Like his arms were like uh, you could see through them basically. It was the neatest toy, and I, I think I'm gonna. Uh, it might be a present for somebody, but uh, I need, I need to at least have it and see it in front of me. I might just keep it too. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited to get it. But yeah, I love the fucking um, Mr. Freeze um outfit i love his design i like you mentioned he's got like the contacts i like his silver skin and i for some reason it's kind of like a george burns thing at this point where arnold has to have a fucking cigar in every movie so much so that they gave him a glitter like a silver uh silver coated cigar to smoke in this movie (laughs) yeah no it it was arnold probably flexing like I don't know if he had any producer credit on this, but he, you know, Arnold carried a lot of weight on the set, and you know, him showing up, and I'm pretty sure the the Planet Hollywood thing was in full swing in 1997. Mm. Like, he, you're paying for Arnold, not so much Mr. Freeze. <laughs> so, like, if Arnold shows up and just decides to be Arnold, I don't think anyone's going to be upset. Um, but yeah, him and him in his smoking jacket with his cigar puts a smile on my face mm. i actually kind of dig it sing, sing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no arnold is enjoying the hell out of himself in this mm-hmm. movie he is really embracing just how how silly the material is um like i said it's just wall-to-wall puns um and <laughs> and yeah his relationship with his goons and stuff is really fun because i like that sing sequence because it keeps cutting to his his goons and they're like frigid and freezing and the one guy's trying to like lick his uh frozen dinner yeah and it's stuck to his tongue and it's like they're just miserable but he's mr freeze so he can't survive outside of the cold so they have to fucking deal with it um if i was them i would you know consider employment elsewhere yes maybe 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 see who else is in town like see if the well actually that's something i'm gonna i'm gonna like put us down a, a cul-de-sac here but <laughs> uh continuity uh 
there there are very strange bits of continuity between these four films um that's I don't know why it's there because it just complicates things and ra- it it just raises too many questions. Raises too many questions. <laughs> so too like, many questions. <laughs> so we have Batman '89, and then Batman Returns. We have the scene, like I said, with the the bat, the bat slide, mm-hmm. where uh, Michael Keaton makes this really funny joke where uh, Alfred's talking to him and he's like, he just tells him about the time when Vicky Vale showed up in the cave. So we're acknowledging that Vicky Vale happened. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I was just working in the Batcave, and I turned around. I was like, oh, hey, Vic. <laughs> it's yeah. like, se- security, yeah. Good job on security, Alfred. <laughs> like, um, and then in Batman Forever, uh, Chase Meridian, when she's on the roof with him with the, the bat signal, when she lures him to the, the roof, uh, she says something about uh, you, you have a thing for women in leather, mm. as in Catwoman. Yeah. So we're acknowledging Batman Returns. And then in this one, we have uh, a lock. We have a storage locker in in Arkham Asylum that has props from Batman Forever. It yeah. has Two Face's suit and the Riddler's suit. So it's like technically these movies, I guess, are all connected. But yeah, it just compl- it just complicates things. It's very sloppy and weird. But yeah, Mister Freeze is a Mister Freeze was such a weird choice for this movie <laughs> yeah. because Mister Freeze, like I said. I think the reason why both of these movies, these Schumacher movies, did not resonate with me very well when I saw them for the first time was because of the animated series. Because Mr. Freeze, his episode was an Emmy Award-winning episode of the oh, show. Shit. Yes. Uh, I think it's called Heart of Ice. And it's Mr. Freeze's introduction and reintroduction to the Batman canon because he was not popular in the TV show or the comics. In fact, I think there were two or three different actors and iterations of him in the comics because he was strictly a gimmick character. There was no backstory. He was just, oh, he's the guy with the freeze gun. Mm. Um, but the animated series was the the source of him having a wife and him having humanity, him having pathos, like a story and stuff. Um, and they, they were very wise to include that in this movie. But from a tone standpoint, it, it throws this movie all up, all over the place <laughs> because you have this very somber story that, you know, yes, it does connect to Alfred for sure, which is one of the better parts of the movie. But then you have like all the cartoonish antics going on around it and you have Arnold Schwarzenegger caught in the middle, like having to be goofy, campy supervillain Mr. Freeze and then, you know, mourning, mourning his wife who is not quite past but is, you know, inaccessible to him. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just very strange that they I feel like Mr. Freeze was probably selected in, similar to the similar to the process for the Sandman being selected for Spider-Man 3 mm. where from a special effects standpoint the Sandman offers endless possibilities. For me, from a character standpoint, Sandman I've never been a fan of uh, in Spider-Man comics or otherwise. Venom. And, uh, we want fucking Venom. We always want Venom. Yeah, but Sam Raimi didn't want Venom. <laughs> Stupid as fuck. I, yeah. <laughs> Kyle's just shaking his head. <laughs> it's like like we're gonna we're gonna like redo X Men and we're just like gonna not have Wolverine. Of course he's not the main character. He's a very important part of the X Men universe. It's like, yeah, we're just gonna you know, He's just such a popular character. I don't really want to touch on him too much. I'm like, no, 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 no. You absolutely have to have Wolverine, 100%. Because he's the he's the character that even if you don't know X-Men, you know Wolverine. And if you don't really like Spider-Man that much, you still want to see Venom. 
So yeah, t- same with Wolverine. Yeah, no, it, it's he's what you would call the franchise. <laughs> there's the X Men, and then there's Wolverine, and it's actually arguable which one carries more social cachet. Yeah, <laughs> I think Wolverine carries. I think he carries X Men more than Venom. Does. I guess maybe Magneto would be more. I think that would be more along the lines. It's like he's such an important villain to that universe that not having him is stupid. Well, well especially the way the the movies have presented. The, the story of the X-Men. It's very centered yeah. on the the question of who has the who has the better outlook on things. Whereas is it is it Charles? Or is we it We are the future Charles? <laughs> we are the future Charles, not them. <laughs> is it yeah, is it Magneto or Professor X who has the the more logical or, or more heartfelt outlook on life? Mm. It's the argument. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. But yeah, Mr. Freeze, I, I like the costume too. I like that um, I like that it has all sorts of bells and whistles on it. It's got lights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got fucking wings <laughs> for one scene exactly. Um, and I like that it has like like I said LED lights all over the place. When he's at like full power, he even has an LED on his teeth, <laughs> which Ooh. looks really trippy. Yeah. We uh, the one thing that's not really clear is that he has superhuman strength when he has the suit on, um, and it that it's not really touched on. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what the thought process was for that because in the animated series and the comics, his suit generally is portrayed as giving him, you know, superhuman strength. Um, Batman can't take him out uh, hand to hand. He has to kind of outmaneuver or outthink him. Um, In this movie, it's, it's depending on the scene. Um, He's either super crazy strong or he's not because the very first time. And in fact, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the way it, Mr. Freeze is introduced to this movie uh, in the the opening heist sequence, uh, Commissioner Gordon pops up on the Bat video phone and says, "There's a new supervillain calling himself Mr. Freeze." So, like, literally, this is the first time anyone's ever seen Mr. Freeze. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Batman jumps at him and like tries to drop kick him, mm-hmm. and he bounces off of him, kind of like uh, Toka and Razar and TMNT two. <laughs> but um, I that's the only hint that we get that batman can't like take him one-on-one but by the time we get to the end of the movie he kind of does <laughs> so it's like contradicting its own internal logic i feel like this movie would have been so much better if he just wasn't punning and one-lining the whole fucking time <laughs> do not kill the dinosaurs <sighs> the ice age or the, uh, the, i'm afraid your please have left me cold or like yeah I'm afraid I've called to your pleas of mercy. <laughs> Chill. Chill. <laughs> cool yeah. party. Um, something that's very important uh, for Batman movies is there has to be a charity event where the villain can bust in. Now, it happens... I can't remember. Does it happen in the Keaton ones? I don't think it happens in the Keaton ones, but it definitely happens in both the Schumachers. And I, I can't remember about Batman Begins, but it definitely happens in... Um, the latter two. Well, the the centennial or bicentennial or whatever gets hijacked by the Joker. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're um, absolutely right. And he, you know, storms the art gallery, which isn't a charity event, but it's it's a peaceful art gallery. Yeah. Um, um, and returns. We get the press conference um, where the the clown flips in and steals the mayor's baby. Yeah, we do get that. Yeah. Um, by the way, that clown that steals the baby uh, plays Max's dad on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. 
and I was like, that guy looks so familiar. I'm like, I recognize that voice. Yeah. He's very funny on uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I always thought he looked like Ugg from Salute Your Shorts. I thought he, uh, <laughs> the clown, I thought he was, um, oh, who's the, um, he's the guy that he's going to kill in Batman Begins, but ends up getting shot by somebody else. What's his oh, name? Oh, Richard Brake? Yeah, Richard Brake. I thought it was Richard Brake. Um, not no, tall he's more. He's more handsome than Richard Brake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even through the clown makeup. Um, the set design you want to talk about the set design absolutely the set like i've mentioned a couple times now like i really like the set design on here it is the budget for the set design was like through the fucking this uh space that they're having their initial confrontation with mr freeze is fucking huge did you catch the scale of this thing yeah no we we get a lot of uh luxurious crane shots gliding throughout this entire space Uh, we we make good use of the space in this movie um, that one, um, Uma Thurman or uh, Poison Ivy's lair is is claustrophobic. Like it is, it is layers and layers of plants. But I like what she did with the place. Yeah, uh, the Turkish bath um, that gets converted into one half uh, like tropical. It's it's almost like you're walking into like a Chuck E. Cheese or something. <laughs> it's like there's the Arctic zone and then there's the tropical zone. <laughs> I, I like Mr. Freeze's lair because it feels it's probably the closest to that campy batman uh anim- or the batman show from the 60s yeah I, it is but i think that's a, to its detriment because um it looks it's not as cluttered it, it just doesn't look like it has as much thought put into it as some of the other sets um his lab like his his secondary base with a poison ivy i think looks a little better his first one with like the frozen food wall mm-hmm. that turns into a like a tube room for his wife that was cool but like i think the problem is you get to see it stripped down because we have that scene where batman and robin yeah. and Commissioner gordon go back there we get to see like how how vacant the floor space is where it's like damn there's a lot of room in here yeah right <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah i just like i mean the- to, to quote the first batman movie is like nice place you got here Lots of space. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the giant button on the wall, like, he just put uses his fist to do it, and his fist still doesn't even, it's not even as big as the button. I'm like, you didn't need a button that big. That's kind of silly. I like that button. I like giant yeah. buttons. No, that's what I'm saying. Happy. That's why I, I like that. Um, we don't spend as much time in Bruce Man like, in the Wayne Manor. Um, I, I like the mahogany, like, dark feel of it. It's like, um, I don't know, they're... I always associate that with rich people, but I've always really liked that. Just like, like the really dim, dark lighting and uh, the dark furniture. It's just very cozy feeling. We we get a more intimate view of it, actually. Because uh, this is, I think, the only movie where we actually get to walk the halls a mm-hmm. little bit. We get to see some of the bedrooms. Um, it feels more lived in. We sp- and we get to like walk the grounds, actually. Like, yeah. I think I think the Schumacher movies are the only one that did that, at least in this era. Yeah. Um, and I like the uh, the uh, living room uh, like sleepover that they have at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an overhead shot that really shows the scale of the room, and it, it it's cozy, like it feels nice, and it, it's a it's supposed to be a very happy and uplifting moment in the movie, so it really works. Um, but yeah, I, I get what you mean about like the color tone and just like the wood texture of everything. Um, we- in general, it's just a more inviting space uh, mm-hmm. than than the tim burton one we we kind of are just in the foyer when we're in the batman forever like we don't really spend a lot of time in the mansion we're in like one room um we do have that giant fireplace again which i i really like um that was mostly the mansion in batman 89 was just that giant fireplace 
Yeah. I don't even um, think we go to that. I don't even think we go to the outside the Batcave in Batman Returns. I don't remember a scene where we're in the mansion. Well, we get a few shots here and there, like when he's on the date with Selena Kyle. Um, oh yes, yes. And uh, when he's hanging out with Alfred uh, in like the library, where he descends into the Batcave. So we get a few rooms, but it's mostly just the fireplace area and like study or whatever. Um, but yeah, the the real star of the show, um, if you ask me, for both of these movies i mean you said the statue motif is out of control in batman forever it yes. certainly is um but amid all that we also get gotham city um, which is mostly represented with miniatures and some really cool looking like neon signage on the streets mm-hmm. um, and then we also get like the the gang ridden areas which are all graffiti with neon paint and stuff um it's really interesting it, it carries over into batman and robin but yeah the the streets of gotham are mostly miniatures and his his vision of uh, gotham differs from tim burton in that like tim burton's feels very like dingy and it's it's stagey but it's also like you could conceive of living there somewhat like it does feel like you're in the middle of like a giant machine or something like there's a lot of like really intimidating like statues and structures like looming over everything mm-hmm. but like Schumacher's is like cluttered to the extreme where it's like I don't think we're even bothering to consider this a place that could be lived in this yeah. is strict this is strictly a backdrop and a prop for action scenes usually involving the Batmobile and yeah there's these gigantic statues like crammed in amid all the skyscrapers and stuff and in fact a lot of the action that happens in particular batman robin more so than batman forever that happens well above the city streets mm-hmm. um and yeah like all the buildings are way too close together and like that the lighting is out of control like swirling lights man like that's why i said like uh, batman forever and batman robin both have that and like the the climax of batman forever and batman robin like um was it the riddler's lair and uh the observatory in mm-hmm. batman robin both just have lights swirling all over the place and these gigantic props that i clearly somebody put a lot of love and effort into like the the telescope prop mm-hmm. is like it's a mechanical structure that comes into play in the action quite a bit and it looks not dangerous but it definitely looks unwieldy like like someone really had to know how to operate that thing properly well i like the i like i kind of the the dark city uh, like the dick tracy matte paintings of like that idea of gotham where it's just so cluttered and stacked on top of each other that it just seems like a mess to try to navigate through um that i think that joel schumacher kind of you get that feel like you get that sense of it's just like it's too cluttered this is not a place that you could really live in yeah what i get from it is um they're just not bothering to take in like consideration like realism or anything Mm. it's like it's like if it fits for the shot we're trying to achieve fuck it let's do it (laughs) and it works like it 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 doesn't draw too much attention to itself to the point that's like bothersome or something it's just something i observed um that that the biker that biker scene i never realized that was nikki cat was the the guy with the uh you know who nikki cat is i don't he's a character actor he i remember he was on boston public i don't know if you remember watching that show it was I think it was a little bit Fox. I think um, he is the guy that gets into a fight with Adam Goldberg in Dazed and Confused he's like yeah so I'm a fucking pothead do you remember do you remember him in Dazed and Confused I haven't seen it actually he he is I think he's a neo-nazi in Sin City uh, <laughs> the bald guy that gets uh, I think 
think he gets decapitated or something like that. Anyway, he's, he's just a character actor, but if you were to see him, you'd be like, oh, that's the dude playing the biker guy? Huh, okay. Um, he's just one of those, like, one of those strange character actors that nobody really knows, but if you know him, you can't not notice him. Um, but, uh, the, did you notice the goon, like, all the, all the different groups? Like, they all have their own theme. Like, they either have, like, wigs on, the dudes from, they basically have the dudes from, um, Clockwork Orange just sitting there. I think it's them yes. exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's them exactly, and then there's a kabuki-themed gang mm-hmm. that have, like, Japanese face paint. Um, Coolio's apparently there. Yeah. Because uh must have been part of like the Warner Brothers record label or something. Probably. It needs to be said both of these films have uh official soundtrack albums that yeah. are packed to the gills with uh movies that or songs and artists that were pretty big at the time. I think Seal was one of them and You think? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh U two it gets the closing credits for Batman the, Forever. This is Smashing Pumpkins get the closing one for this one. Okay. Uh the one for Batman Forever was Kiss from a Rose. That was huge so yeah it was like, huge, i think yeah. seal yeah seal <laughs> i was i was joking <laughs> okay <laughs> I know. um but the one that threw me off was when we get our um our uh black light glow in the dark gang at the turkish bath they're just sitting around drinking and listening to 90s alt rock i'm like i figured you guys would be listening to like black metal or some kind of industrial metal or something i'm like no 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 just like it, it sounds like uh Oh, like Pearl Jam or some shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, remember, this is a Gotham that Batman has been active in for quite some time. Maybe they've, uh, maybe they've toned it down a bit. Maybe, maybe they're not as tough as they used to be, (laughs) the gangsters. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of which, the lead thug is pretty legitimately creepy looking. That's exactly what I was gonna say. I'm like, hello, my little pretty, pretty, pretty. His the the neon contacts are. And the no blinking is pretty fucking creepy. <laughs> yeah. Um, what does it say? The, we got the goons. We talked about the actors. We got the, the set design. Uh, you mentioned the, um, the one of my favorite. Uh, I don't know why it's funny to me, and I wish I had a gif of it. Uh, the Batman, when they're going down the arm of the statue, going after Mr. Freeze, he's like, pull back. I can make it. <laughs> and he just keeps, I can make it. I don't know what it is about his delivery. Chris O'Donnell is kind of a funny screamer to me. Uh, he he has a very teeth gnashing delivery when it mm. comes to screaming and whatnot. Um, that arg he does oh, <laughs> yeah. that was a trailer shot for sure. But he kind of nailed that. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, that that's a uh, that that's like one of the the major story developments in this one is that he and uh, Batman are coming. They're kind of like butting heads over the fact that like. Robin wants to be his own man. He wants to strike out on his own, and he feels like Batman's holding him back. But I will say this much: like from a thematic standpoint, it is kind of neat that we we do go there where Alfred is dying in this movie, and mm-hmm. Michael Go gets some excellent scenes, um, and George Clooney also has good scenes with him. But the the point is, Alfred is dying. He's not quite ready to tell Bruce about it. Um, but he keeps alluding to it (laughs) Um, and basically he like throws it in Bruce's face saying like I get what you're trying to do you're trying you you've manifested this Batman character because you're afraid of letting people die I'm an old man that's dying (laughs) but he's kind of challenging him on the fact that it's like you know this obsession with preventing the people close to you from you know meeting an untimely end it life doesn't work that way so you need to understand that like Robin 
Robin is going to he's going to try to make that jump whether you want him to or not and it, it's not within your power to stop him every time so it's it's kind of Batman growing in that way I guess like kind of you know pumping the brakes a little bit and understanding it's like you know I can't control everything I'm Batman I'm only capable of so much um but yeah it's it's kind of contrived in that it like it all comes down to them feuding over a woman for the most part yeah <laughs> um in fact it feels it feels manufactured in the sense that that's the catalyst for it mm-hmm. i mean poison ivy shows up and she charms both of them with her thermal dust and uh <laughs> she like kind of plants the seed plants the seed in uh robin's head that like you you should be you should just be robin you deserve a robin signal instead of you know showing up for the bat signal like as his sidekick or whatever um but yeah it kind of resolves itself off screen yeah. <laughs> like bruce just kind of like is like yeah you're probably right and robin same deal he's just like we think that he maybe is turning to the dark side or something but no he didn't no <laughs> that's it <laughs> Um, I don't, the music didn't really stand out to me as, it didn't seem as, ab- as abrasive, but I don't know, it just didn't really stand out to me as much in this one. I, I think it's, I think it's a better score than Batman Forever, um, just because it's more varied. Um, I got really tired of almost every action cue in Batman Forever having the same piece of music. Yeah, and that's um, probably why I remember it so well. Yeah, no, repetition, it, it fucking works, man. Cath- like, my my father's Catholic school upbringing will tell you that much. <laughs> it's like, you ask him to recite his times tables, bam, <laughs> without even thinking. Automatic. Uh, but I think it, it's just more varied. It's slightly more confident. I still don't like it that much. But if I had to choose between listening to either of them in isolation, I'd probably go with Batman and Robin. Um, just because Mr. Freeze has some more sentimental cues. Mm-hmm. Um because he he has his his plot about or his subplot about uh trying to save his wife and that's like the foundation of his characters like he's turning to super villainy because he's looking for a cure for his wife and or trying to turn the world into ice depending on his mood yeah i don't know i think doesn't um poison ivy kind of convinces him like yeah you should just freeze the earth and then we can just kind of start over like i'm like okay it's interesting um yeah poison ivy basically like tries to kill his wife and mm -hmm. blames it on batman and uses that as a way to twist his arm into or twist his thinking into coming around to her her plan of killing all of humanity so the plants can take over the earth i think uh because it's the use of shadows and then it's really dark in the scene as well the scene where um not Tom Berenger. Who's the other guy? I always get the two mixed up. B- uh, bad guy from Blade Runner. Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer. Um, in their old age, I don't know why they look similar to me. But when well, they're they're both in Christopher Nolan movies. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, when Mickey Rourke is ripping his head off, at the, he like finds out who's responsible. It's a shadow shot. I yeah. think if you were to take that, if you were to edit it, where um, Poison Ivy is in her cell. And Mr. Freeze comes in. He's like, "Not!" And he's about to—he's basically about to kill her. I think you could—you could do that because it's Mickey Rourke ripping the dude's head off in shadow. I'm like, oh, that would actually be pretty good. <laughs> oh, speaking of Arkham Asylum in this movie, um, I wanted to draw attention to some stuff I noticed. Um, hmm. So, one, Jesse the Body Ventura is hmm. one of the prison guards. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's worth pointing out. 
Uh, the other guy was in Gladiator. Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, yeah big German fellow, I think, but yeah. our Germanic anyway. <laughs> Bavarian, I don't know. It's something along those lines, but um, I I just wanted to point that out because um, this may have I don't know if this was the director's choice or a producer's choice or or whoever, uh, but. I think it's fascinating that we have a, a big budget Hollywood movie wherein Arnold Schwarzenegger is often framed as being not nearly the biggest guy in the room. Yeah. In uh, 1997. This was, that's unique. That is not something that in the 80s would have been allowed to have happened. Really. Or him actually having a moment of weakness against yes. another human. Yeah. No, he, he gets, he's shown like horribly weakened in this movie and that, that makeup is terrifying yeah for a small child watching him like crawl on the ground like yeah like his eyes are bloodshot and he he looks sickly (laughs) um well the big garb is actually a former mr universe too oh really yeah uh yeah well but in terms of just stature they're both at at least a half head taller than him Mm -hmm. i think arnold's only like six two how big is jesse ventura is he like six five He's probably like six three, six four. Six three, six four. Other and wearing, he... wearing shoes, so he's. They're both in the frame, much yeah, larger than much he bigger. Is. Um, and even like Vivica A. Fox, mm. I, she's in this movie. Yeah, she's yeah. in this movie. Um, she's wearing heels, and she's like, in terms of stature, she's like, probably eye to eye with him. Mm-hmm. And wearing his robe, walking around. There's a lot of goons that are equal to him in size. Yeah, you couldn't have that in the eighties if he was if he was I mean, if he was the head if he was the headliner in an eighties movie. No, 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 he didn't have side roles in eighties movies. <laughs> yeah, there was no if. <laughs> no if, but oh. I just think it's fascinating because I don't know if it was Arnold's choice because playing this role as Doctor as you know Mister Freeze, there's no need for him to be Herculean or even big at all because mm-hmm. he wears the fucking suit. So, like, I don't know if it was Arnold's choice. Like, I want to play the role the way it's written in the comics. I want to be a scrawny professor <laughs> of freezing. <laughs> um, I want to be a girly man with a laser gun. <laughs> my wife has to be blonde. <laughs> my wife must be blonde. I've been feeding it blondes. Um, I didn't see Sven Oli Thorsten in this one. No, I, I didn't either. I was looking for him, though. He would have been too... I think he's too old to play one of the beefcakes... Uh, too big to be one of the goons. Yeah, he just he doesn't fit. He no, could have been. He, he's a top tier goon. He needs to, he needs to stand out just a little bit. He needs to get like a couple of punches in before he gets taken out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a big dude. Yeah, he's a primo goon. He's yeah. a, he's a top shelf goon. <laughs> primo goon. <laughs> yeah, you don't find him at your local Costco. You got to go to like the your premium market, like a PCC or <laughs> some one of those. <laughs> he's a little more expensive. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um. I don't know what else I had to say about Batman and Robin. I mean, the the themes, I think, like you said, like the surrogate family theme is there. We don't really have the, the latent homosexual themes uh, in this one like we had in Batman Forever. Um, there's really not much. I Like, even the surrogate family, it's, I don't know. We do have the partners, the partners moment at the very end. Well, yeah, I mean, this... It, it's not insignificant that we, we get an on-screen moment where Bruce Wayne and Alfred tell each other that they love each other, mm-hmm. like in, in as many words. Um, that's pretty rare, uh, especially in 1997, to have two grown men tell each other that. Very true. Uh, um, and yeah, the surrogate family thing, I think, is is definitely worth noting, where it's Bruce Wayne, you know, deprived of his biological family, has surrounded himself with you know people that love and support him. 
and in turn i guess it's an equal exchange mm-hmm. um yeah uh, one thing i want to say about the production of this film uh is that this film was fast-tracked um it went into production very quickly after batman forever because batman forever made all the money mm-hmm. um and in fact before this movie was completed i guess they were already asking joel schumacher to come back for something called batman unchained mm. um he declined, I guess, but, and I'm sure that, you know, after the negative press came in, after the film was released, they probably backpedaled on that. But mm-hmm. point is, they were actually trying to hire him while they were still making this one. So this was a very hurried production, and almost everyone in the principal cast speaks at length about how it didn't feel right, mm. how it felt like we, we, we all rushed into this and nobody quite knew what we were trying to do. And everything Joel Schumacher has to say about it is he's very intensely apologetic about it Mm. um, because he knows this movie pissed off a lot of people, especially really big fans of the characters. Um, He's very apologetic, but he's also very realistic about it, where he tries to stress the fact that it's like, I was contracted to do a job. I did that job. Like this, This was the movie that I was told to make, therefore I made it. So any complaints you have against me shouldn't be directed at me it should be directed at warner brothers and the producers um which is somewhat fair i mean he does deserve some of the blame because it is a very sloppy movie and even from a like cinematic stamp like just a production standpoint there's a weird moment where i always noticed this even as a kid where uh, robin is uh caught in poison ivy's pool and the yeah. vines have trapped him and he like rears up out of the water and then they reverse the footage to show him go back down oh i didn't notice that it's so bad because <laughs> it's like you mean he didn't have any any footage of him popping his head out and going back under that okay sure but there's a lot of that and like i said i feel like the the sets while grand in scope and scale uh they just don't feel as well considered as batman forever batman forever to me is a much more visually spectacular movie um, at least in terms of set design the miniatures in this film and some of the cgi for the time especially fucking pretty good yeah uh, the miniatures in particular i love the observatory set with the giant sculpture like of the man holding the observatory high above the city in his hands mm-hmm. that's really fucking cool and some of the city designs and like and the props and stuff it's it's all cool like all the miniatures with the batmobile and you know the some of the other lesser vehicles that i can't even name because there's too many of them but that's that's the dark side of the production is that not only was it rushed um, apparently, like the toy companies had a major stake in the budget of the film. I was gonna say the, so I like how the bat suit changes when we get the the Robin suit in Batman Forever, and I think they both look good. The the new suits in this one, awful, absolutely terrible. Well, they're they're trying to do a thing where it's like we're we're, riff, we're riffing on the Adam West version of the, of the character, where it's like, oh, Batman has a tool for everything, like his utility belt has. Uh, shark repellent spray <laughs> like literally that's from the movie uh, batman 66 yeah. um but you know it, it just doesn't quite land as well because it just comes out of nowhere and we get this really sloppy extraneous action scene wherein all three of the bat family in their individual vehicles ride down a very really narrow street like it's just like a really sloppily hastily together mm-hmm. uh, like thrown together street set where we fight Mr. Freeze's vehicle driven by someone who isn't Mr. Freeze. Meanwhile, we still have Bane 
nowhere to be seen. That motherfucker doesn't know how to drive, by the way. I'm going to go ahead and say that. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't it have been great if we did, like, a commando uh, thing where he has to, like, take out parts of the vehicle to 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 fit fit in in it? (laughs) That would be hilarious. But point is, we just have this random extra action scene that was thrown in there largely because the toy companies had products they needed to shill, and we need a scene dedicated to the bat vehicles doing things. But we couldn't be bothered to figure out a way to incorporate them into the actual climax of the film. So we just have this extra scene that was probably shot with nothing but stand-ins and stunt doubles. Like, I seriously doubt George Clooney was actually on that set. I do like Chris O'Donnell or Dick Grayson having fun uh, driving the stuff. Like him driving the Batmobile. like (laughs) going on the street. I like him in the boat, him just shooting out of the the tunnel. Just woo! Just having a fucking blast. It's a nice touch for his character, being really high energy like that. Yeah, no, that's always going to be fun. His energy was there, but I do think it's funny that a character named Robin is put in a boat. (laughs) It's a little weird, but but yeah, uh, Batman and Robin, you you get the sense that a lot of stuff was shoehorned in there to sell toys. Yeah, like Mister Freeze having wings for one scene. Um, the the new costumes just for the closing act of the film, uh, the bat hovercraft that Robin has at the end of the movie. yeah, <laughs> like there, there's just a lot of that going on, and then like Poison Ivy having like six different costumes. Although that's just kind of fun, I like that, especially since it all seems like kind of seasonal. Like at one point, the leaves on her eyebrows are like kind of fall themed, where it's like kind of brownish. Yeah, and stuff like that's fun. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot. You could tell there was a lot of push and pull going on with people who had a stake in this production um so it's it's a the storytelling comes across as very muddled and other than you know the the parallels between mr freeze's wife and alfred and their respective illnesses and the the theme of bruce wayne being unable to accept loss like there's just really not a lot going on there yeah there's there's really not much to this movie um I didn't really have much else to say about it. Um, I guess revisiting it as an adult, it's I had to kind of shut it off halfway through because I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I get it. I'm I, I just needed to revisit what I kind of liked as a kid, and I think I I got the gist of it. Um, I probably won't. Like I said, if, if like you said if we're gonna do a Batman marathon and just like run through all of them in a row, yeah, I'm not gonna skip this one, but I'm not gonna be paying attention to it as much. Yeah, I I actually maintain, I think, that there are no legitimate bad or horrible Batman movies. Like, they're all watchable to some extent. Like, this one's largely inoffensive. It's just shallow, is all. Um, And you definitely need to be in a mood for it to really have fun with it, I guess. It's all sizzle, no steak. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to look at. It's fun to kind of look at. But if you're trying to actually engage in the material, you're like, eh, not really. No, it's it's not very substantive. Um, you <laughs> you got to be ready for the puns. Um, I for yes. one have an issue with puns. I don't handle them well, but some people actually love wordplay like that. They really get off on it. I don't know if you've seen. I know you don't like like comedy movies, but there's this scene in The Watch with it's it's a Ben Stiller, Vince Vaughn. Joey. I saw that actually. It's pretty Billy, funny. Billy Crudup had fun. Billy with that. Crudup, yes. <laughs> it's really a it's a good nice little comedy, but. These kids attack him with eggs, and the kid makes a pun, and Vince Vaughn 
and he gets angry it's really funny but he's like what a fucking pun <laughs> just his reaction and he, he's chasing down to beat the shit out of this kid but now i'm now I'm imagining you like just shut the fuck up with the puns uh yeah no i've i've literally done that a few times you can love puns and still get very agitated with this movie the only reason it's okay is because it's coming out of arnold yeah. And he comes across as just a kid in a candy store. Like he's yeah. just having fun, and you can you can see it. Um, but yeah, I think that's about all I had to say about Batman and Robin. Um, forgot to mention that uh, Two Faces gals in uh, Batman Forever, Drew Barrymore. And, oh, yeah. Was it Debbie Mazar? Debbie Mazar, yeah, the yeah. the Gumar from uh, Goodfellas. She's playing the exact same role. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. I mean, she's competing with with Drew Barrymore. <laughs> like, she's not the primary. That's for sure. I remember being like, I remember as a kid, I'm like, like, like getting older, watching this, and like, damn, Drew Barrymore is like, and Foxy in this one. I mean, she doesn't, she's not anywhere close to Nicole Kidman status, but uh, she, when, when she when you first meet her, she's wearing like lingerie in that uh, in the hideout. Yeah, for real. No, that's like her uniform and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like Two Faces, his hideout, like how it's literally split down the middle. It, it's something that you can tell someone had a, a ball designing that set, even though it's featured in like 120 seconds of the entire film. I do like her whenever she's being introduced to Bruce Wayne, and she's just like, oh, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, it was, it was a fun, again, probably a throwback to the Adam West era, where it's like, you know, he has themed goons. He may as well have themed gumars yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like one for each side of two-face um but yeah i think that's about all we got to say about the joel schumacher era the schumacher of the, era the schumacher era of the uh batman film franchise um next week of course we'll be covering the christopher nolan era i don't know if i'm going to be splitting that episode because that is a lot that's a lot those are the longest movies and there's three of them yeah, and there's a lot to them also. I mean, um, we're pushing three hours for these two, so... <laughs> these two Jesus. nothings. We'll probably have to split those up, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, in the meantime, if you want to check out some of our other episodes of the podcast, uh, we do have a website. You can find us at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts. That would be a Twitter, at Catching Cinema, as well as an Instagram, at Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, so yeah feel free to hit us up at either one of those accounts and uh hopefully we can get back to you in a jiffy uh that being said uh thank you so much for listening to our batman Masterclass episode two the schumacher era and uh we will catch you next time yeah